Well, shit. Safe to say this top line is the best in the league? Yeah, we are. Nathan McKinnon! Oh, captain! My captain! Do you know the way to San Jose? Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. I'm Steph, and you're locked into the final episode of Burgundy Radio for the 2019-2020 season, 12 months later. We're going to look at reasons the Colorado Avalanche dropped their second-round series to the Dallas Stars, what, if anything, we can learn from the COVID Cup, and we're going to make extremely irresponsible decisions about what to do with the team next. But before we play the whoosh, let's tell you who I've got with me today. It's the same crew as usual, so hello to Earl. Hello, friends. And hello to Jackie. Greetings. So last week, we pretty much called Game 4 a must-win, or at least I did. And not only did they not do that, they didn't so much as test the goaltender for 18 and a half minutes. So that's an L, even if they get decent goaltending to bail them out, which they did not. This game got so out of hand, we brought in Michael Hutchinson, and then Pablo Francis was declared unfit to play. The Avs said, son of a bitch, we could probably win a game in this series if we could get goaltending north of 900. And weirdly enough, Michael Hutchinson pulled it off not once, but twice as Colorado crushed Game 5 from the outset and then put on a pretty smooth dominance from start to finish in Game 6. So that's now three times in the last three seasons the Colorado Avalanche have fought off elimination in front of their third goaltender, which they had recently traded for from a team based in Ontario successfully. They couldn't make it four in Game 7, which was from a neutral perspective, just an incredible hockey game to watch. Uh, For us, of course, it was pure pain. Uh, The penalty kill was game-losingly worthless. Uh, They both allowed chances, and they couldn't stop them when they happened. And then finally, some guy you've never heard of polished off the hat trick in overtime to send Colorado back home from the bubble. So I want to start with our shouts out to Michael Hutchinson, who outperformed all our expectations, and maybe less so in Game 7, but turned out to be the Avs' most successful goalie in Round 2. Very strange. Yeah. Yeah, he he was a lot better than what I, I think we all would have expected after watching his performance versus Detroit in the regular season. I mean, he he turned out okay by the end of that game, but it was it was really shaky in the beginning. So, you know, throwing him into a situation like this, it it didn't look good. So, two wins out of your number three goalie, you know, that's a, that's a plus. It seems to happen, though, where you throw someone in and they can have short-term success. You always, It's always the miracle backup goalie or the kid. You know, We saw it with Pickard. We saw it with Hammond. We saw it when they brought in Werner. You could even say Bebo. It, it's, not, it sh- it's weird that it's not <laughs> unexpected. I just laugh have... every time we remember Bebo. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I do something other than laugh. <laughs> <laughs> But we won't go there. Um, so, in a way, it didn't feel like what Hutchinson was doing was so out of left field. But the thing is, you knew it wasn't going to continue. It just was a matter of how long. Well, I, I, I think it actually showed that they, they it wasn't just Hutchinson going in. 
like the, the staff buckled down and made some changes between games four and five. Um, I mean, you could see them, you, you could see the breakout was a big time change. Like the forwards were a lot more gapped down um, than they had been. And that was helping a lot on the breakout and, you know, kind of cutting down on the mistakes right in front of the goalie that Frank kind of benefited from. Um, <laughs> benefited from. So I, I think those changes were something that they probably should have made a little bit earlier in the in the series, but, you know, better late than never. But I, I think the performance by Hutchinson is a little more reflective on, on what the team themselves did and what the coaching staff did. Um, more than sort of his prowess you know you can Maybe it... you can look at um the the some of these more advanced stats on on natural stat trick and see that for what good that these numbers are worth which is very debatable um hutchinson saw shots from an average of eight foot farther out than either of Franco's yeah. or grubauer did and yeah, that includes sure the arizona series uh... too So no, I I agree with you that when well when they got to game five it was do or die, and at yeah. that point you have to pretty much throw all your tricks at the wall, right? You you there's no tomorrow, so you got to do something. And right, and I think they would have made these changes if, whether it had been Grubauer coming back in or Frank continuing or whatever. I mean, it's just um they they needed to change some things after what happened in game 4 and that allowed Hutchinson to you know be able to help the team more but not to take anything away from Hutchinson though because no he did come in and he did give them a chance and that is commendable yeah so it is also worth remembering that game 5 um you said they had to pull out all the stops and the first stop they pulled out was somehow convincing the Dallas Stars to start Ben Bishop who they lit up and then lit up again and then lit up again and then lit up again like yeah, whoa that was great all of a sudden <laughs> all of a sudden we're scoring goals like where did this what <laughs> cool thank you do it more that's definitely what they needed was to get a lead, something like that. It took the pressure off. I was more impressed with game six. That was more of a sustainable type of way to win. But they were greatly helped out that Dallas only was given one power play in that game. Yeah. Which that, I'm sure we'll get into. That was one but... of the awkward ones from this series because we've seen a lot of the, the even out calls like you see in every NHL hockey game, but this one didn't have that. Like, you can't really argue nope. <laughs> that Dallas got called for non-penalties, and you can't really argue that a whole lot got let go. Like, maybe a thing here or there, but, like, that was a reasonably, like, by-the-book officiating job. And you saw what happened, is Dallas struggles and to actually get anything going because they can't, you know, pull you into some nonsense like they did in Game 4. It is funny, yeah. once and, Dallas... And, and started to get worried they dropped that they dropped the tough guy stuff so it's funny that they and didn't i think that would have happened anyway as you get on in a series yeah it's normal yeah but it's, but it's funny the because Corey perry drawing four calls kind of thing that that didn't happen again i think that calls cause the officials to say wait a minute we Corey perry four oh no did we get owned we, we got owned didn't we boy yep <laughs> 
But it's it's weird to see Dallas go away from doing that because it's so effective against this team. Right, which is funny is the second they felt threatened in their position, they didn't go back to that. It was the last three games of this series were very tame from that perspective. So I'll um, agree with that. When we get to game seven, though, uh, it's really just like game seven was a snapshot of the whole series. Frankly, Um, neither team could make a save. Uh, Colorado couldn't do a goddamn thing on the penalty kill. Um, And eventually it just comes down to a defensive breakdown with a with your third goalie behind it. Who's not going to bail it out. Yeah, that's the part that kills me is that. They had the lead with three and a half minutes to go. Like after everything that we're going to talk about, after that you were on your third goalie, after that you couldn't kill a penalty, everything, you had the lead with three and a half minutes to go. Like at that point, you have to win the game. It's just, and it is such a a micro way to look at this series. And we're going to talk about a ton of big picture things, but that's the thing that gnaws at you. Is yeah, just and, watching Graves kick that puck off of Kadri's stick, you know, it just that just keeps playing in my mind again and again. You take the lead at the end of the game, and the first thing that you do is say, "Let's try to go against a four on two. That, <laughs> yeah, like, and, and really? they had the lead for most of that game. They went in the third period with the lead. It's yeah. just that's the frustrating part is that they had it. And they're the ones that threw it away. And they didn't even score first. They got scored on first and still came back and and had the lead most of the way. Yeah. And a, apart from on the penalty kill, lead. <laughs> like a, a, apart from on the penalty kill, the the defense looked pretty good. Uh, Hutchinson looked back to his you know very springy pads shakiness. We we saw him losing multiple rebounds in just the first period and kind of said, uh oh. Um, which didn't end up playing a role on the overtime goal, but it sure did on the tying goal. Yeah. So once again, it's not one thing doesn't go wrong. It's multiple things. And it's always multiple things. It's, it's that way for every goal against it's that way for every series loss. It's it's always multiple things. So we're certainly not going to pick on one person or one thing, but the thing is, it all matters. It all adds up to matters. As much as most fans want to do that, we're not going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. And I think that's one of the toughest things I'm having to deal with, with trying to, you know, write a postmortem or something like that is, is there were a lot of things that went wrong early that didn't go wrong late and vice versa. Um, so it, it, the series evolved a lot from game one to seven and it's just, there's not a lot of really concrete things other than the penalty kill that you can point to and say, you know, this is bad. And and this is a major factor in losing. And I just want to pump our tires for a minute because this was, uh, I think the the prediction that, that Jackie came in with was that it's going to start off rough and Colorado are going to have to fight through some adversity, and then they'll be able to do it later on. And damn it, they almost did. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, do, do they, we ever... They had a... I'll, I'll, no, I'll let you sit on that for a minute if you want to. 
<laughs> you, you deserve it. Well, thanks. Thank you. I I come back to one thing I said is they never felt like they were in control. And the only time I felt like they finally got it was game six. But it was too little too late at that point. So, I mean, yeah, I, I think fans were a little bit too much on easy street there after the Arizona series. And I mean, how you could just you knew... not be? <laughs> I mean, it was fun and all, but you knew that it was going to be a lot harder to win, to win the cup. So I expected adversity. I didn't expect them to lose the series at the beginning. I thought they would pull through it. I thought that they would have a better handle on things by the end. And then by last week, I predicted they wouldn't win, unfortunately. Not like I'm happy to be right about that, but... Like I said, they just didn't have any sort of control at that point. It was just too late. And I think that's the unfortunate part is they just let this series get away from them. And the way they came back is certainly admirable. I mean, they could have been done in game five. And I think we would feel a lot different yeah, about would. things. <laughs> if if games at seven had happened in game five, you know, where they were close, where they battled back, but yet they still lost. It would have felt different than we do sitting here after game seven. So I, I think yeah. you can take that away from them, but from how they looked going into this with how they looked really good in the round Robin and then the Arizona thing. I mean, we knew that that wasn't complete reality, but we thought that this team was maybe a little bit more than what they really are. But I will say, after all of this, I don't really feel that much different about this team than I did, say, the beginning of July. So one thing that yeah, I, mean, I definitely think... want to spend time on, and I, I want to launch right off of what you just said, um, is how much can you really take from this weird bubble hockey event five months after the regular season? And we're going to talk a lot about some big picture things that you would think that you can't really take away from a situation like this. But when you actually listen to the words coming out of our mouths, we're, we've been seeing the exact same things all season long, and they really just got amplified here. I don't yeah. necessarily feel that much different that it was in a bubble and that it was after a four-month or whatever it was pause because this was the, it was the same team. It was they, they played the same way. They had the same problems for the most part. Um so I think whatever they do for next season is going to change more than what changed after what was an even longer pause because they kind of did pick up where they left off. So I don't know. I don't know what the effect of being locked in a hotel and things like that. Did that really change much? I don't, I don't know because it was still avalanche hockey. I never felt like I was watching some weird version of the sport. Like it was – it was playoff hockey to me. You know, I felt like I was watching Bizarro Stars, though. And maybe it's just an accident of which goaltenders they've, they've faced, but they figured out how to play offense at the right time. Yeah, and they did it. I, I think that's the one thing that happened in the bubble that didn't happen in the regular season is um, instead of just lapsing into like, oh, well, I guess we can't score this week. You know, they they did find ways to score. The urgency was there that we, that we don't often see when, they, when we get these problems in the regular season. Um, and and hopefully that's something they can take and and you know hopefully cut some of these bad um, stretches uh, that we usually see 
oh, generally in mid-December and again in February. Um, you know, so, sort of be able to nip those in the bud a little bit better. Um, because they, they really did make some decent adjustments inside this series that you don't often see. One thing that uh, I kind of go back to is this would have been the round one matchup had the COVID issues not happened. Had we had a normal playoff. Yes, because the Avs were looking like two, Dallas was looking like three, and if for some reason that flip-flopped, it would be the same matchup. They, so, weren't, they weren't catching St. Louis. Shut up, they weren't catching St. Louis. No, really, shut up. They weren't catching St. Louis. Um, everyone wanted them to. It wasn't happening. It was versus Dallas. It was going to be who's going to be the home team. That was it. This would have been your first-round matchup. Would that have been different? Cause like I, I wonder in because the, in the first round, because maybe yeah. you still have Matt Calvert, but all the other injuries happened here. Oh, I think it it, it would have been really different. I, I think it took the Calgary series for Dallas to figure out they couldn't you know win zero zero every night. So uh, I think what they learned from playing Calgary was a big factor in you know basically the way the st- the series started and and ultimately ended. See, I wonder you know, they, that they, too. They started to play offense, but I also wonder how we would feel if the Avs were out after round one. Bad. If if this was round one, I don't think we would have lost though. Because I mean, but we kind of smoked them in the round robin. <laughs> yeah, but we smoked them in the round robin pretty good. Um, you know, and that that would have gone. I mean, obviously that that wouldn't have happened. Um, but it just sort of, sort of shows what the coaching staffs of both teams were going to, you know, sort of put out there as their opening gambit. Man, I, I just wonder if, if the Avs had lost in round one, people would feel a lot different. They, they really would. It's true. Um, but I, I keep seeing flashbacks of that round, Robin, the game against Vegas with the Robin Leonard's posts making like four saves and seeing round one Chicago, round, round two Vancouver. And just going, man... Hockey's cruel. I mean, I think the, the biggest thing I'm, I'm going to take away from the bubble is sort of the effect that, that crowds have and, you know, actual home ice has. Uh, I, I saw something, a tweet today that, you know, home teams basically had very little advantage as, as far as, you know, shot metrics and, and scoring and whatnot um, throughout the, the bubble so far. And that's generally not what you see. Um, you know, obviously, good teams are going to have more home games, but um, you know, I, I think it showed that that there is a big advantage, you know, with the Avs playing in the Pepsi Center and and um, what they get from their crowd and and you know, being in their own locker room or whatever. Um, you know, it's. It, it's not something you could easily quantify before because we couldn't A, B it. So now we have the B and you can kind of see like, okay, I mean, this is what home ice really does for. I think it does have something to do with momentum, especially if you're down in a series, have knowing that you're going to come home and you're, you're going to be able to have that advantage with you as you try to either even up the series or get back into it. But one thing that we said was there weren't game sevens. Here we go into the second round. There's three games. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the hockey god so, said, but you got to be careful what you ask for. Um, so this round, teams were able to 
maybe fight back or whatever you want to say. More you could also say a little more on. even matchups. That too. Yeah. Because round um, one did have a it, couple of stinkers, like ours. Um, <clears throat> but round one always has, you know, a, at least one series, maybe two, that's like, bleh, not even close. So it, it's not that weird. Maybe the gap of how not close it is is bigger. But that's about it. And one other yeah. thing is that a lot of people said, well, they didn't progress. They were out game seven, second round. It's the same thing that happened last year. And there are going to be a lot of same things that they need to address. But for me, the regular season matters. I mean, they were a much better team. They were a no doubt divisional playoff team. There was no doubt this team was going to make the playoffs. That That's new territory for them after they had to claw for the wild card two years in a row. And yeah, how they, they weren't played a bubble in, team. And how they played in the beginning with the round robin in Arizona. I think that's definitely progress there, but you also have to figure out how to take the next step after that. So I I do feel like they took a step in a way that maybe people are forgetting a little bit because that was ancient history and we're only thinking about what happened in the bubble. But to me that stuff matters. That when you're you're a better regular season team like that. You just got to keep being that kind of regular season team. It Agreed. also matters that there are 31 soon, 32 NHL hockey teams and four of them make the conference final. So be- between trying to, trying to say, are we want a, a top four team in the league or not? Like ev- even beyond that, you've got to talk about how much luck is there in a seven game series you got to talk about, you know, just being the best team doesn't mean you win. It doesn't mean you go ab- above 500 all the time. Like Right, the- it's not linear. Like, the Capitals were out in the second round three years in a row, and then they won the Cup. Right. So, those things are certainly possible. So, it's not like you go second round, then conference finals, then Cup finals. So, the important thing is to build that foundation where they're always going to be in the conversation. They're always going to be a playoff team. They're not just clawing for the last one. If you're that kind of team where you know you have one of those divisional slots every year, then you're giving yourself a chance every year. Yeah, what you, you don't want to be the LA Kings saying, well, we've won it from eighth, so any team can win it. Like, yes, technically that's true, but you want to expect to get out around one. Any, any team that gets into, into the second round has a legitimate shot. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I've noticed uh, over the past 10 years or so is there are a lot of teams that make conference finals and then they decline after and that. And then disappear, yeah. Are yeah. we, are we it... thinking of uh, the Ottawa Senators in this conversation? Or the Devils, uh, the Rangers. Sharks. Sharks. Sharks made a final, though, but yeah. Um, you know, it's sort of weird that like when you take that step to the third round and then lose... I, I, I don't know. It, it's almost a negative effect, and it, it I, maybe it's sort of the GM saying, "You we're know, one player we have away. to." <laughs> you were one player away, one expensive mistake away, uh, maybe several. I don't know. And you know, it'd be interesting if if someone really cared enough to take the time to go back and see what happened with those teams, whether they were just sort of last gasping it that that spring and and went all in or something like that. But well, we know um, Ottawa's fatal mistake. Yeah. 
Um, and and the Ottawa example, I think, serves to show also that how, just how much of it is bullshit. Because was Ottawa one of the best four teams in the NHL that year? Was Ottawa I one of the best so. ten teams in the NHL that year? I mean, making the conference final is not some like incredible goal. It's the, it's a step along the way, and it getting there or not doesn't declare whether you're a good team or not. And I think that Earl is right to to say that teams that lose in the conference final are are really a risk. To say, "Woo, we were just not quite good enough to get there." Well, no, you lost this playoff series. Tampa came out in the first round last year and got blown out of the water. And what did they do in the offseason? They no. got gritty. Did they? Yeah. Or, did, or did they do mostly nothing? No, they, they they loaded up on some gritty fourth-liner types. Well, they made the, their deadline deals that looked like overpays at the time. I mean, we'll see if it pays off. Did they win the cup? Then it was worth it, but... They they have gotten contributions from guys like Goudreau and I think it was Coleman, the other one that they overpaid for. But that's if that's what gets you the cup, then then it works. Oh, my but, my point is they didn't make any big changes. They tweaked around the edges. Yeah, they didn't trade right. any stars. Yeah, or get a big UFA. They, right. They said you know what we're doing based on our the eighty two games of results, not four games of results. What we're doing is the best in the league. So we're going to keep doing that. We're going to you know make some fringe tweaks because you know, you got to make some fringe tweaks. You can't just sit there. And uh right. And now look and at messing them. with your depth is the kind of thing that the teams that were really close ought to do. I mean, I know obviously they went out in the first round, but they they you know, they should have been in uh, projected higher. Um but yeah, you know, they they said, you know, instead of having maybe a little more skilled bottom six, we're going to go with a little more grit and that's that's kind of what we need to to get past a a team like Columbus, which they somehow ended up against in the first round again. Um somehow because Toronto. <laughs> so, you know, that worked that worked out really well for them so far. Um, you know, they've they've got another gritty test coming up, so you know, it, it, that might have been very prescient that they did that. But my my point with bringing up Tampa is like there's there's a lot that all teams that believe that they're doing well can learn. There's a lot to learn from there, which is if you if you like what you've done through most of the season, the thing to do because you lost one playoff series, really because you lost one playoff game when it comes down to a game seven, is to you know. Have a little bit of patience and, and calmness and rationality, which is why we don't, you know, on the the day of the game, which, which is why you don't try to figure out what you're going to do next. <laughs> you give right. it some time to breathe. Um, so Colorado lost Philip Grubauer in game one. Um, not good. Not 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 great. Not good. He uh he was bad and then he got hurt. So was he already hurting earlier in the game? Maybe. And then, yeah. and then Pablo Francois came in, and he was reasonably putrid. He had one game where he was an eight ninety something, and that was his best save percentage. And Colorado won that game. And then it turns yeah. out, oh, he's hurt too. So in comes Michael Hutchinson and gives us two nine hundreds. Colorado win both those games, and that's the way the series goes. Um, so today. The narrative in, in Avalanche fanland is there's a goaltending problem. Is there a goaltending problem? 
I don't know, because if you believe these guys were hurt, then what? I mean, <laughs> are you faulting them? The, the Frank one's hard, because was he hurting? At first you wondered, did, are they saying he's unfit to save face? And, and you were wondering that because it was game five, and if they were out that game, maybe you never know. But when they get through game seven and he's still not able to back up, then okay, you start believing that he probably really was hurt. So then you think, how responsible was it trying to play him through whatever was ailing him? But without knowing what it was, it's pretty hard to say, was that an irresponsible decision or not? So I still feel like Grubauer and Francois are a good tandem. If you believe they got hurt, and it was just bad luck that both exploded at the same time, is it just bad luck? I hate using the injury excuse, and I'm going to say that more than once in this podcast, but if that's what it was, then do you need to spend assets, money, chasing after something that's probably not going to be a significant upgrade because you're overreacting to the injury bad luck? I think with Grubauer, it's a little more than injury bad luck, just because you know he did spend significant time on the shelf this season. And again, yes, we don't know if I, it's the same thing or not. But um, I know I, I fully agree with that, especially that it was a non-contact injury. If it was right, something you he definitely, got run into, then you could say, "Hey, that's bad luck." But non-contact right. injury that was that was going to happen at some point, and. I do feel a little bit like I said last week, you know, you wish maybe they had split them a little bit more because the Avs say they have a, a 1A, 1B tandem and then they'll just ride a guy. And it's like, maybe you should, especially knowing that Grubauer has these issues, maybe you should be a little bit more cautious there. But I know that's definitely some hindsight in there too. So yeah, the yeah. Grubauer thing... Moving forward, is he going to be healthy for the start of the season? B, can you count on that? But then if you want to go get someone else, he's still signed. So is he part of the return? He's going to be an injured guy, so that's not going to have value. I think they're in a, a bit in a tough spot if they want to make a big change here. Like everyone wants to go out and get a UFA. I mean, this is a team that does not want to spend that kind of money on goaltending. I don't see that happening. Nor or, should they. Or trade for a guy. Okay, you're going to bring in Matt Murray. You're going to have to give him a big contract if you bring him in. And then what do you do? You still you have three goaltenders signed. Nobody likes the three goaltender idea. So I don't really see them able to do a whole lot unless Grubauer can't even play next year. But that remains to be seen. Yeah, no, I think you're right on that. Just because without without knowing what they think about Grubauer's durability going forward, it's impossible to say what they have to do. I um, think what they need is a better three, someone that you don't, you're not like, okay, we're getting AHL goaltending, but that's tough because if you don't want to carry three goalies and that third goalie has to go somewhere or come from right. somewhere. So there's not an easy solution there either. I don't think there is any solution. I mean, it's like, all right, say say they wanted to keep Hutch as their third for next year. I mean, you know, he did win two games in the second round of the playoffs, so he's pretty good, right? Um, he's not going to pass through waivers if anybody needs a goalie um, short term. You know, unless the Avs give him some kind of weird contract that nobody's going to want, which I, I doubt we'd want either. They shouldn't be scared <laughs> about that. It's crazy that they're scared about that. I mean, 
that shouldn't prevent you from signing one at all. Like, I'm just saying, if you sign a guy and he's going to get taken on waivers anyway, that's like signing nobody. <laughs> well, and the other thing is, if you pick a guy like Hutchinson, who might even be good enough where you're worried about it, you still have Hutchinson-level goaltending as your backup plan. Like, the only real solution to that is to have a young, up-and-coming guy that's still waiver-exempt, but someone that you actually believe can give you better than AHL level goaltending. And that's what so, I want. Unlo- until they believe in like Werner can be that guy until Annanen can be that guy. Maybe they can pull another miracle out of Europe. Uh, another Francois type of player could be that guy. It, they won't have better as their fail safe. Everyone says, if you're up to your third goaltender, you're screwed anyway. But n- nobody was ready just to walk away from the series and say, Oh, well, we're, with their third goaltender, we don't have hope at all anymore. No, everyone was just as invested and just as hopeful. So it's like people say winning matters and what you do matters. So why why are why should you just be so resigned to well you're screwed at that point? And it's tough because there is no perfect answer. Well, here's a question. Let's pretend there was no Hutch and they had gone with Werner as the third goalie. Uh, would you have felt better or worse going into game five about the Avs' chances of winning just that game? Because, you know, obviously that was an elimination game. Maybe you hope a little bit with more with Werner because, because you don't know where the, the ceiling is yet. For the short term, I think I feel exactly the same. Because yeah. I, I saw Werner shut out the Winnipeg Jets, and I saw, saw Werner just get dominated by the Edmonton Oilers. And, just their power play. He was fine 5v5. And I saw Michael Hutchinson fail to win a single game with the Toronto Maple Leafs. And then when the Avalanche played in front of him and he got a minute to adjust what they were doing, you know, be not good, but not abysmal. So... Yeah. It's, it's it's the 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 question comes down to, you can play a goalie who isn't good but might be, or you can play a goalie who definitely isn't good. Which one of those right. in the short term? That's that's a coin flip, and who cares? To right. to me, this that, is a longer term point. philosophical like, I, question. I would feel no different about Hutchinson or, or Werner going into that game five. Um, you know, it, it you know if you're sitting there like, well, gee, I wouldn't want Werner playing three games, you know. Uh, yeah, probably not, but um, at that point, it was just one game, and, and you know, that was the choice, so um, I, I just, I, I think you you would feel much better doing something that might benefit your organization down the road. Say, say Werner wins that fifth game and the sixth game, and, and, you know, the same outcome happens. You know, it's like, we can take Adam Werner and say, all right, we can trust this guy, and we can play him as our third goalie next year, and, and right now we can't, because he just didn't get that that option but he could have lost game five terribly and they could have never wanted to see him again and then you know, and, the, and then you would, really, would know you'd have data would you yeah. really blame him though but see here's no. the other thing let's say it's miska you would be like hell no they're not winning any game with miska but it's kind of right. the same thing it's like not your fourth well, goalie like not your fourth goalie Ugh. maybe maybe your fifth I, <laughs> I think it's a little bit more gray area between those three of what the pecking order is maybe because Miska is still a younger 
goalie that maybe hasn't shown the ceiling, hasn't had the chance yet. Let's just say, what if what if they had chosen Miska? He goes out and plays well game five and six and seven happens where it's not his fault that they lost, let's say. You it, it you could have like he could have carried big. them to victory, but he didn't. I guess no, I, I would feel better it. about that because because Jackie's right. He is young. I mean, he's still an RFA. You know, that's a that's a lot more tenable position for the Abs to be in with a third goaltender. I'm just saying. I know that we all like Werner because he's a he's a prospect. So I know that there's people out there that say we we all want to see the best in the prospects, and we, we get a little blinded by that. And it, it is true because because there's always hope with those guys because other organizations manage to bet on some guy and, and they actually make good on it at some point. So yeah. it could happen. I mean, it obviously factor Demko is a much better prospect than Adam Werner, but in, I mean, after seeing what he did to Vegas for two games, you know, like this is what happens when you throw a young guy into a game. You, you don't know what's going to happen, but it could be really good. And it's like, you know, you throw a veteran in there and, it, you know, he might get you through those two games, but it's not going to be something you're going to be impressed by and do anything for you long term. So, yeah, to answer the original question, they have a goaltending problem. I say no, but clearly there's questions. Clearly there's how much can you really expect from this entire group of goaltenders and how can they really improve that position without some sort of miraculous move. When we, when we say of... when we say goaltending problem, people usually mean NHL goaltending problem, and that's where no. I that that's what you're saying is they don't have that. I think what you're saying is they maybe have a pipeline problem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean I think th- I, I, I think there there's definitely a question about what do you do with Philip Grubauer going forward just because his contract's up next summer. Um, I don't think they want to sign him long term. And that's term. not a now problem, obviously, but it's just, you know, now, you, now you're now you a little less sure about what they might do with him. And I know we, you know, the, the thinking is, is that he would probably want more money than we'd want to pay. And he probably isn't worth it. So maybe he was, you know, he was never going to be re-signed. I don't know. But, you know, there's there's definitely more doubt around him than there was. It's the I same mean, situation, though. With if, if you let Grubauer walk and you got Francois to be the next starter, then we're still saying, oh, we don't really know whether he's a starter or not because he was injured for this series. I don't you, think they you do. Def- <laughs> <laughs> you definitely need a, another 1A, 1B if you're going to yeah. move forward with Frank. I, I know he is not a number one bonafide starter, but I think he's getting a lot rougher ride than he deserves. I think Assuming so, he was... Assuming he was really injured, which, like I said, I question a little bit, but I think the further out we get, it seemed like he was. And I think the whole, like, the only reason why they lost this series is because of Franco's. I think it's a little ridiculous. And yeah. He's he getting caved them, in. And... <laughs> he did win them a game. He did. He was in the Magic Bullshit game, if you want to believe that that, what, that wasn't really his fault. Oh, so here's... And then in game... <laughs> Or no, he gave yeah. them a chance to win, even though he wasn't great in that game. It was to, they, they were one goal away and had a, a power play, you know. So he gave them a chance to win at that point. I don't think it was he lost them the series in those games. So here's where I'm going to get really, really, really irresponsible. So game two, 
Game two fell apart at the the five on three for Dallas, right? Yeah. So what happened right before that five on three? A penalty that should have been called and wasn't. And that penalty was Corey Perry slashing the shit out of Pablo Francois. Yeah. And for the rest of the series, we see a couple of close-ups of Frank's hand where he's flexing those fingers going, God damn it. Yeah. It's certainly possible, yeah. So if- and I think he also had the flu, because he definitely had... the Like, underneath his nose was all red and stuff like that in that final game. Um... <laughs> so if that point we then immediately give up a five on three goal because you're not stopping that shot you got to stop the pass and then we get scrambly and can't hang on to rebounds and give another power play goal and then there's the, the Radulov shoulder goal no one gives a shit and then he can't hang on to his post and falls over randomly to give up a goal and then there's which maybe was never a goal <laughs> uh, right which maybe was never a goal I mean there's everything falls apart starting at the back end and then outward at from the point where Frank gets slashed in the mitt, so Corey Perry lost the abs that that series. He sure did. I think that's that's definitely one reason. So but that's yeah, my I mean, extremely I'm, irresponsible theory. I want to be very I, clear no, that this is not a responsible theory. And I'm not. There's stuff Frank to back it up too. Because like. He, well, he just all right. Hurt. His glove hand is not that bad. Like he gives up juicy <laughs> rebounds, but there is stuff with his stuff going with with shots going off his his glove that he looked like Spencer Martin, you know. So that's just not him. Um, so I, I don't know how else you explain it. Even if it wasn't Perry Slash, there's something else going on that was different. Um, I I look at his game four, and that's where he got pulled. And it was a weird game. He was in for a little over 30 minutes of just 5v5 time and saw nine shots against. And he gave up two goals. That's not great. Yeah, all right. That's that's not good at all. Um, But he was also in for uh, a little over nine minutes of PK work that game where he saw 16 shots. And it just... That change in tempo, going from 5v5 where you're not seeing anything to dealing with a PK where the guys in front of you probably aren't that confident, neither are you, and the stars are shooting everything from real close. Um, I just, you know, I, I think that's a tough situation for him to be in, especially if whatever else was going on. So, well, the, that's, it, that's it, just a really weird situation to be in. And, and I think that's, you know, if they pulled him for being bad there, you know, it, it wasn't just him being bad. They were they were basically pulling the whole PK there. Well, it was interesting they didn't pull him after the third goal. And then then that's when he had, I think that was in the first period. He didn't give up a goal at all in the second period. Then the third period was the four and five goal, which what was four on the on the penalty kill. Five was the Makar one where he just threw it through Frank's legs. I mean, that one is not Frank's fault. The handoff no, it was sure clean. Wasn't. <laughs> it was, <laughs> there was no one in the zone when he went back to get the puck. The handoff was clean. He was skating back to get in the crease. I don't see how that goal is his fault at all. No. Then they pulled him at that point. So it makes sense at that point, you know, that you have to change something. I don't think it was a pull where it was like, all right, we're done with Frank. Because... If you were going to say that, you would have done that after 
the first three goals in, in the first period. So I know right. it comes off like we're defending him, and I think he needs some defending because everyone is about ready to kick him back to the Czech Republic and say never come back. He definitely needs to wear some of it. He was in net. Bad things happened. But bad things happened to all goalies. And Grubauer was not great in game one before he got injured. So He gave up I three on seven. Lightly. Yeah. So I don't think you could just pin it on Frank, especially in the regular season matters to me. He was good. He was ex- what, exceptional. He was one of the better goalies in the league. I don't think that's all just means nothing. Yeah. I mean, when you look at what he did after Gruby got injured in the stadium series debacle, I mean, he was fantastic down the stretch. <clears throat> um, he was. So, you know, you can't throw all that away just because, you know, two or three games in a series like this. Where he maybe had a busted up glove hand. And we don't, and maybe yeah. it, it may come out in like, you know, before the show drops that, you know, he had a pulled muscle in his foot or something. I don't know. Oh, yeah. I'm sure they're doing exit interviews right now. Well, but, well I'm on altitude for tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I I don't know what we're gonna hear because they like telling us nothing. Yeah, I don't think they're planning on talking to anybody for a couple months, but hopefully <laughs> somebody gets some information somehow. Yeah, yeah. it hopefully it, it the information has a way of dripping from from wherever it's being held. So hopefully we'll find out something. Um, the Czechs yeah. like to talk about their guys. That's very true. The the dudes like to go back to Europe and talk to the media. Yep. <laughs> um, so I'm going to throw on my lawyer hat and not ask any questions that I'm not pretty sure I know the answer to. If you don't think goaltending was the main thing that lost us the series, what do you think is? Special teams was enormous detriment. Can we get more specific than special teams? I th- I think both power play and penalty kill. Both of them I, were terrible and lost them the series. Yeah, I think I think the power play was mediocre, which is bad considering who you're putting on the power play um but i think the, the, the penalty kill was a special kind of awful i think they're both fireable how bad they were like i know that that in the expected goals and such that the power play was at least generating something but you cannot go four for what was it 32 which is 12 percent yeah and and say that that unit was giving them a chance to win. One of those was a five on three goal. They, they went from game two to game seven without scoring a five on four power play goal. And it was Kadri with that scramble rebound is the only one that, that counted in that game. And it's, it's like, that was the only reason why they even had a chance to win game seven is they finally got a damn power play goal. And it's just unacceptable. You can't do that. You you need your power play to to make a difference. You have to take your opportunities in a close game. I mean, it if this series hadn't been the the crazy video game scoring as it was, it would have been even worse that they couldn't score a power play goal because you absolutely have to take that opportunity when you're given it. And following the Shark series where they scored two power play goals in that series 
it's a huge problem. It's not like this was a great unit that all of a sudden, for whatever reason, the bad luck happened and they just couldn't get a goal in. We've been talking about it all damn season, that the power play is not good enough. And here we are. Yeah, it's... I mean, some numbers that stood out to me, like they, they had 0.56 goals per expected goal. So they were generating chances on the power play and they weren't finishing. Um, you know, some of that's luck, but not, not, not to that extent. I mean, you know, that, that's a special kind of awful. Um, another thing that stood out to me is Makar had no primary assist. I mean, obviously there's only four goals, but... Um, you know, and I'm not blaming him for that, but it's just if it's you're not having a system where Kale McCarr isn't able to use his vision and passing ability to set someone up for a goal, I mean, how can you how can you be happy with that? I mean, he's a gifted player and he's a very good passer and he doesn't have a single primary assist. It, it, that's just I don't know, that's mind boggling. It's funny that my husband who watched watches very little hockey, watched a little bit of these, even said to me, the power play looks too individualistic. It's all the guys just standing there and they're just trying to snipe one in from wherever they're standing. It they do pass a lot. So but passing is basically passing out of trouble, you know? Right. It's not making a play. It's it's passing to pass off the problem. It's not passing to make a play and that's what the power play is i've i've argued for years that mccarr needs to be thought of as a forward and a shooter on the power play you're neutering talent by having him stand at the blue line and either distribute the puck left or right or take a point shot from almost at the blue line like that is not using kale mccarr's talent that that doesn't understand what his talent is and like you said He's not making any plays, and it's also been proven that successful power plays are the ones where the defenders are passing the forwards, like you said. So there's none of that. That's why you're not successful on the power play. And None of this is new. We know this. We've known this the whole year. We did this last year. This is not a new problem. So it wasn't just a matter of things going a little dry. It was a big problem. Well, and we also saw, you know, a good solution to it during the Arizona series when they, you know, they got a couple goals from handling the puck behind the net and and putting it out front to the bumper. And I saw so many times, especially in game seven, it really stood out to me that Mac would be behind Kadri in the center passing to him. So he's trying to make like an oblique 135 degree tip. And you're just like, what's that doing? You know, I mean, that's just a dumb play. If you're going to pass to the bumper, you have to be below him. We have been calling for that play from behind the net (laughs) all season long. We Every once in a while, Miko goes back there and does it, and they score half the time. And then the Avalanche say, oh, no, no, none of that for me. Thank you, but no. And the funny thing is, the person who had the most power play points in this series was Miko. It was not McKinnon. Yeah. You don't have to be, like, sometimes people hear critiques like this and wonder, well, what makes you think you're so much smarter than an NHL coach? Um, Which, 
I think it's silliness. I think we, anybody can critique what they see and be just fine with that. But we're not alone in this. It's not an Avalanche fan gripe. Everyone hates their power play. I know. It's not an Avalanche fan gripe. Colorado played the Los Angeles Kings during the spring. And the LA Kings broadcast, like they often do, gave a, a little bit of broadcast time to Snoop Dogg, who watched a Colorado Avalanche power play. And he famously said, y'all can do that all y'all want. Y'all ain't gonna get no points. And he was right. <laughs> he was right. Yeah, well, people say that. It The analysts, when they get on TV, they're like, well, I don't understand how a team that can score like this can't score on the power play. It's like, watch yeah. it. It's you like know. they don't try. I, I, <laughs> I will push back very slightly on this by saying that Colorado's power play in general drought went from games five through seven, and they won games five and six. And I will also say that I saw a, a big adjustment in Game 7, and a little bit in Game 6 as well, where, because earlier in, in the series, you would Dallas was just like, no, you're not getting in the zone. I don't care if we have fewer players than you, you're not getting in the zone. Because they would just collapse on Nathan McKinnon and dare him to beat four people. He's Nathan McKinnon, he still isn't going to beat four people most of the time. So, what Colorado yes. did was they found a new entry. They made an adjustment. Yeah. They used yeah, rookie for all the entries in the last two games, yeah. And even though it went fruitless, I know Benner said it was better in Game 5. You know, getting more looks, sure. It, it and For some reason, it seems like when they have a good couple power plays or a good game, then that just reinforces, hey, what we're doing is good. It's just a matter of executing. And I don't, I'm not going to yeah. dismiss that entirely because I do believe in that to an extent. But we know that the problem is there. there's no creativity. They're not using what they have. They're not great on the puck retrieval. That's also something that, if we're going to talk about execution, is something they might need to think about. Putting someone well, on the, the way they're set up with the umbrella, you can't because you only have one guy on puck, puck retrieval, really. Right. You it's, know, it's, it's if, just, if you have three guys high in the zone, there's almost a guarantee if the puck goes low, you're not going to get it back. You have some of the best puck-moving defenders in the league. And there's no reason why you need to stick by the, we can only have a one day power play. We can only set up the umbrella. We can only do this. We can only have McKinnon shooting from the Ovechkin spot. It's just, it's ancient thinking. I'd rather have them try things and have it not work than just keep beating their heads against the wall over and over and over again with this. Yeah, and, I mean, there should be three different kinds of looks they should be able to give a team at any given time. Um, and I know that sounds complicated, and there's a lot of thinking involved in everything like that. But <laughs> thinking's um, hard. But when you keep trying the same thing and it doesn't work, it shouldn't take you three games to make the adjustment. I would like to point out that you just called it the Ovechkin spot, and there is very serious discussion in the hockey world right now: is of is Nathan McKinnon the best player in the world? Like, is he better than Connor McDavid? And you'll notice it's I... still called the Ovechkin spot and not the McKinnon spot. <laughs> Hmm. <laughs> right, that's not what he's <laughs> scoring on the power play is not what anyone on this team is going to be known for. It. Maybe Miko, I think they do have an advantage with Miko on the power play, but like you said, Steph, use Miko then, use him behind the net. Use him in what he can do. It's nice that he can hit the one-timer. Sometimes he falls over doing it, <laughs> but you have to have It's always other funny. Ideas. There's so, no reason why. The great thing about Miko, 
and I, I like both Miko and Gabe behind the net, but Miko is so big and he's able to keep the puck away from defenders really easily with his size. And I, I think when you're setting up a static offense like that and you're not using speed, um, sort of the reach that he has is a big advantage, especially back there. So I don't know. I mean, they just, they, they, they need to find uh, fresh eyes on this problem. Obviously. It, I agree because it's just so goddamn baffling. If you're willing and able to change your zone entry in the very end of the second round of the playoffs and see success that way, how are you not willing and able to change what you do in the zone? Yeah. It doesn't make sense to me. You're paying these guys millions of dollars. You can learn multiple power play looks. It's literally their job. It's all they do. Right. Yeah. And it's even worse in a I mean, series you're... because you know that in the regular season, an opponent isn't going to change their penalty kill for one game. In a series, yeah. they absolutely will. And we saw that with the Dallas Stars. They, that that's how they shut down the avalanche zone entries. They said, okay, we're going to take away Nathan McKinnon and nothing else. If you get in the zone, we'll go back to normal. But before that, Nathan McKinnon's the guy. And once Colorado figured out how to beat, how to, figured out how to beat that, they actually got some power play looks and finally got him a dirty one in game seven. Yeah. Ugh. And I think that's a, I, I think that's a good way to go because first of all, like Berkey can pass it to Nate. Uh, on the wall going in this way or Berkey can enter enters enter the zone and then Mac's not covered usually because you're, you're usually not going to cover the weak side guy so Mac instantly has space to move into and it just I don't know I mean there's a million things you can break down like that but it, that's just an example of things that work and need to be counterpoint better. A, a counterpoint to myself why is Andre Burakovsky on power play one in game seven because Gabe Landeskog isn't. <laughs> and why isn't Gabe Landeskog? Because he got his leg sliced open by Kale McCarr's skate in a freak accident in Game 6. Because Dallas can't get anything that isn't a fucking gift. So, yeah. were That's they actually the willing and... Were, were they actually willing and able to change in the neutral zone? Or were they forced into it? That's a good question. No, because I... Th because they were they were going away from Mac doing the entries by game six anyway, and it just happened to fall to him. Um, yeah, not only did McCarr, you know, basically lose game four by passing the the puck off of Frank's skate. A uh, hard disagree. You lose that game when you don't uh, get a shot for eighteen and a half minutes. You know, no primary assists. He cuts Landy's leg off. I mean, you know, <laughs> is this guy for real? I mean, should we trust this guy on the ice with us or what? <laughs> I game six would tell you this guy's a star. So if if anyone was worried, maybe he didn't look like he was at full throttle at some point. He does still have games where he just he takes over. He's he's the best player on the ice, and he can make that kind of difference. And that that's really exciting. Yeah, they just I, and him I. Out. Yeah, I, th I think both he and Mac were just, they looked like they were real tired. I, you know, we might find out that Mac had something something up with one of his legs um, as we go on, because he, he didn't have 100% jets, I, I don't think, the last couple of games. Um, and that might just be he was tired, but it might be an injury, who knows. Those two um, played a lot. They did. 
you know, you look at the numbers as far as ice time for the entire series, and it, you're like, let's see, now that is what percentage? Wow, they played almost half the series. <laughs> and and we'll get to the individual players in a minute. Um, before we do that, I'd want to flip it to what I think was the bigger problem than the power play because you can you can survive a power play that doesn't score. They did it twice, um, and they could have done it the third time if they had killed literally any penalty in game seven. So let's let's flip it to the defense, um, which is an area that I'm obviously like not as able to talk about other than to say make a goddamn save. Um, what what? How did the penalty kill become so bad? The it wasn't all goaltending. I can tell you that for sure, because when you, when you look at the amount of chances it's given up, it's far worse than anybody else, and it's far worse than anybody in the NHL in the regular season. It's remarkably worse than the thirty first worst. Regular season penalty kill team, the Buffalo Sabres. <laughs> Which Good I company. found that interesting. I mean, after we talked about how goaltending was such a, a disaster that ended up happening, it wasn't the goaltending on the penalty kill. It was the players on the penalty kill. I oh, think this I is mean, where... There, there's some caveats to that, but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll agree at first. <laughs> I mean, yes, giving up a rebound is a goaltender's problem that hurts the penalty killers. So that I think that is part of it. But Also, the Avs um, can't retrieve a puck, as we just established on the power play. That's true on both sides of the ice. The Avs can't retrieve a rebound. Yeah. I mean, it was almost 40% that Dallas was scoring on their power play in this series. That's that's just beyond unacceptable. That's I think it was, what, 9 for 23 or something like that is just... You're just giving... Only, only one of those was a 5v3. And that took yeah, like you're... three seconds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah That's pretty embarrassing. Um, and I think this is where you, losing EJ hurts. I don't think it was so much on the defensive side. But EJ was a better penalty killer. Calvert, I, we've had some discussions about maybe he's not statistically the best penalty killer, but he's on that unit too and that sure that could have hurt but he's a better penalty killer than jt comfer is yes but he didn't take comfer's spot that's a thing um you know basically don scoy and then logan o'connor took calvert's spot um you know they for some reason they love comfer and nieto out there and we all know what can happen when you put those guys together we've we've seen it many royal road is open for business But but we also saw a lot this, of Ryan Graves killing penalties with EJ. Yes. Out. Yeah, yeah, and and Graves did kill a lot of penalties anyway. But yeah, I think this is where you really saw Graves and Cole. I, Cole was really good. I mean, if you want to talk about statistically the best two penalty killers the Avs had during the series, it was Cole and and Tyson Jost of all people. Amazing. Um, Who could have ever seen that coming? <laughs> Yeah, they, didn't, they didn't play Jost much, but when he was out there, he sure was effective. And you know um, who didn't penalty kill at all? Was Nuke. Yeah, that was weird. I was looking at the time on ice. I was like, "What?" I think he had like they didn't one use second. Him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, like never. And, and at some I point, don't... they even used, they used Sam and Makar in like game. Yeah, they six. had to after. Yeah, they used them a couple times. They used them when EJ got hurt, and then again when uh, there were other problems. <laughs> um, you know, 
you look at the stars, all right, they had basically 1.2 goals per expected goal. You know, that's pretty, that's, that's pretty, you know, that's a, that's a decent power play number. So the fact that the Az were giving up so many expected goals was, was really the problem. And it just, I, I don't fault the goalie for a lot of that. Obviously you get some big rebounds and, and you know, that does turn into some pretty high expected goals numbers. So, you know, there, there's some of that in there, but, um, you know, when you see a really high expected goals per 60 number on your penalty kill, it's generally because of the skaters. Well, they couldn't clear oh. the puck. We know that. And Cleared, but not out. Yeah. Boy, they got <laughs> close so many times, though. <laughs> it just hands it right back to the guy at the point. Yeah. And Hutchinson um, was really bad goaltending-wise, and he brought their numbers way down. Um and it's funny, so, Francois was still the best on the penalty kill. He sure Francis, was. He was awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he only gave up 0.8 goals per expected goal when he was in there. I mean, he gave up a lot of goals, but, you know, the, the team was allowing a lot of quality right in his face the whole time. So, I mean, I don't really blame him for that part. You know, it, it, regular 5v5 play, yeah, he, he did struggle. But on the penalty kill, he was not the issue. It's funny, I think it was before game six or something like that Benner actually talked about the penalty kill and said that Dallas likes to shoot from the flank and we just have to do a better job blocking and getting to those pucks and I don't necessarily disagree with him because it wasn't like Dallas was doing anything exotic on the power play like they know how Dallas likes to execute it and they were able to and of course when you hear like please block more shots as you're directive it does get a little cringy because you have to have better ideas than that but they just they completely fell apart they didn't do any of that yeah i mean it seems like dallas went for a quality first approach and it worked really well um you know they, they weren't like the abs that you know they they didn't generate quite as much quality per shot um you know they weren't wailing away from the point as much um you know, because they were able to get the passes through and get the Royal Road shots and things like that. You know, they they just got they were able to generate a lot of quality without, you know, really trying that hard. Which that that's the that's the distressing thing is just how easy it was for them to to generate what they wanted to do without having to resort to, you know, peppering point shots away or whatever. If you know they're going to shoot from the from the flank a lot, flank is an interesting word for that. Um, what you're talking about is low percentage bad angle shots. That that sounds good to yeah. me. Let them. Why why are we putting bodies in front of the goaltender for that? Why are we potentially deflecting them in ourselves in that situation? I don't. Yeah, I I you know you, the one of the magic bullshit goals was totally a, a flank shot that bounced off a few people and over Frank. Um, you know I. If the Avs were going to shoot from some place that's low percentage all the time, I would prefer I would prefer it being from there rather than the next zip code <laughs> from miles away. Shoot. Yeah, so I mean that's sort of a a bad strategy that works well if you if you want to call it that. <clears throat> well, um, it's also it's part of the Avs not getting to the puck. Either they're not blocking it or they're not getting to the whatever deflection it makes. Yeah. Well, they but just... you're right. I agree that 
if if you're saying their strategy is to shoot from over there, then it shouldn't be the biggest problem on Earth, which it was. Well, I mean, you know, it's like if you can identify the problem, it, it shouldn't be that hard to come up with a solution. Um, so he's you know, pretty it's, much it, saying it's, it's when execution. teams do things that are surprising that that you you kind of get caught flat-footed. If you know what they're doing and you can't stop it, that that doesn't that doesn't say a lot for your repertoire. I'm going to disagree that it's the problem, and I'm going to say that his solution to that situation, and I'm not even going to say he was calling it the problem, the, the solution to that situation is to block shots, which puts more chaos in your high danger zone, which was the problem. Because the yeah. penalty kill spent probably a half hour of this series scrambling. Yeah. And it, I mean, if you think about where where a flank shot's going to end up, it's not a place, it doesn't like, you know, it's not an EJ shot where it just rims out and clears itself, that kind of thing. You know, you shoot at the front of the net from the flank there, it's going to be basically in front of the net somewhere bouncing around. Um, and that's that's much harder to recapture if you're the defending team. Um, you know, than, than along the not that they're good at recapturing there either, but it's just it's much harder <laughs> when it's in front of the net. So yeah. The the, the penalty kills struggled to to recapture pucks and apparently their strategy was to make chaos in their own end. Yeah. Weirdly it didn't work. It did not work. And then occasionally you have some moments like in Game 7 where you have two stars get behind all the Avalanche defenders and they have all the space in the world to make whatever tip they want and they don't even make that good of a tip and it still gets through. I'm pretty sure that the second power play goal Dallas got in Game 7 gets stopped by either of the other Avs goaltenders. The point being the shot, the chance shouldn't have existed anyway because there's two Avs defenders just doing nothing. Yeah, I know. It's like Graves is standing in front of both those guys. I mean, that's sort of the no man's land. Like, all right, you're too far away to block and you're not behind them, so you can't defend. And then I don't know. I I can't even remember who the other defender was, but they were off uh, sort of at the side of the goal, not, you know, nowhere near. I think it was the door off. Yeah. And he was a big problem on the PK. Boy, he when he was on the ice, the shots just flew at the net. Um, about 160 Corsi per hour at the net, and it—that's a lot. Yeah, and I—I was—I was doing with or without use, um, just sort of seeing, you know, trying trying to figure out like who had good influence and who had bad. Like EJ seems to be a good influence. Cole was a good influence. Zadorov was a bad influence, and I—I can't tell whether Graves made Zadorov worse or Zadorov made Graves worse. I think because Graves is generally okay. Um, it's, it's probably more like Z was, was the, the bad factor there, but it, it might've just been those two guys just don't work well together. But you know, when they were on the ice together, it, it was big trouble. I, I could easily see them not be, not working well together. That's, that sounds right. like a, I have no other option kind of match to put together. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, it was even worse than like Connaughton and somebody. So you're just like, all right, what's happening? So do we have more to say on the penalty kill, or do we want to go ahead and and bury this well, one? I, I mean, they need to fix it. I, obviously, both special teams need a lot of work. That, um, there you go. That's what I'm forgetting. How do you fix it? Yeah. You, they they obviously I have mean, to address it. Like, the, can, this is not can a these coaches thing. fix these special teams? I don't and, know. I, 
I think we would like to at least see a a better power play coach. I don't think Pratt runs his defense poor in general. So I don't know if he needs to be fired for the penalty kill in particular, but they need at least one new assistant head coach. They need new ideas. They need a fresh approach. This is not a panic button sort of reactionary thing. It was mediocre to pour through the regular season anyway. Like we knew that this, this was going to be something that would be their Achilles heel. And it was, so you have to address it. It's not going to get better just with hopes and prayers. And, and keep an eye on Andy D friend of the show. Who's doing a a lot of, you know, post-mortem work of her own. And it is part of that is showing that the, the penalty kill was, you know, embarrassingly horrifying in this series, but it was bad all regular season two and was inflated by goaltending. Like, yeah, it, it's percentage wise. It was like top 10 because the goaltending was outstanding on the penalty kill, especially Frank, especially Frank. Yeah. But when it comes to, to actual chances being given up, it's not great. Yeah, it's not even good. Um. No, I mean, they, you know, after Gruby got hurt in the um, stadium series game, Frank only let in two power play goals the rest of the season. And they were both to San Jose in the same game. Um, you know, and again, that was when Jost actually started playing a lot of PK minutes. And again, you know, we like that. I don't know why the staff doesn't, but, you know, it, <laughs> numbers don't lie, coach. Um you know, I, I think they need to, to really, you know, take a look at, at who they're using and why and, and, you know, why isn't it working consistently? And when you do have a guy like Joe's that, that seems like in, you know, admittedly smaller num- uh, sample sizes, gets the job done, you know, maybe you start using him more. Um, I, I know they love to get locked into saying, all right, these are our four main guys and, you know, we'll use a couple others maybe, but... Um, you know, it just doesn't seem like the personnel is helping. So, how how many problems have we identified at this point? It, it, they, they, the Royal Road is wide open most of the time. They, around the net, they're not good at retrieving the puck. They're trying they're to scrambly. block... They're scrambly. They're, they're trying to block shots that aren't dangerous, which make them dangerous. I mean, the only thing that we haven't touched on is how easily they give up the blue line, which off the top of my head, I don't think I could answer that for you. Um, They're okay at at denying zone entries. And that's one thing obviously Zadorov brings. Um, He's not good once they sit, once the the opponent power play sets up, but he's, he is good at denying zone entries. Um, You know, I I don't know if that's something that, you know, they should do more of whether you know, they have a pretty good forecheck a little higher in the neutral zone. So maybe that, you know, they, they sort of do that and then ease off. And I, I don't know. They weren't but, really a shorthanded threat, which I could see. If someone says that's pretty luck-based, I could buy into that. But yeah, they only, well, they, they only weren't a shorthanded threat because of who was getting the chances. Like, they had chances. Yeah. It was, it's just that it's Nieto and Belmar. I think they Just for the record, use... no team scored a shorthanded goal in the second round. Which is... Funny because a lot That's of them happened weird. in the first round. Yeah. And Dallas gave up a lot of them. I'm yeah. I'm not saying that you should set up your penalty kill for shorthanded goals, but I think they could go a long way if they used a little bit more skill on the penalty kill. 
Well, I, I think Logan O'Connor uh, is a guy that, you know, I think we agreed last week that, that made a, a pretty good showing in his debut and whatnot. And, um, you know, some bad things did happen when he was on the ice. I, I would assume since he's the rookie that he's probably not a major influencer out there. Um, but his speed is something, you know, that that is a threat that, that you know, could turn into more goals down the, the road or, you know, at least more clears. Um, so using guys like that, that with more speed rather than guys that are a little slower. That could help too, yeah. So there's there's some personnel stuff going on with the Royal Road. There's some systemic stuff going on with how dangerous non-dangerous pucks become. There's a, <laughs> probably a combination of the two when it comes to retrieval. And then there's, well, you're, you're on Michael Hutchinson, who's not very good. Who's not going to yeah. bail you out. So that's what happened. And EJ, I mean, basically, if he, I think if EJ was there the whole series, that the, the penalty probably kill been would have been a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would have been quite have been a bit a different. Better. As much as we harp on EJ for missing a coverage here and swimming out of place there and and those things, he he does retrieve a puck. Yeah. Um. So, but when it comes to fixing it, like you're looking at fixing it from multiple different angles. Yeah. And that's just, that, that's the one thing that worries me about saying like, you know, Pratt does things well, maybe we should, you know, let him figure it out. I mean, it, it's, you know, it's been a systemic problem for a while. I don't know. Um so I I'd be fine with letting him go in some ways, but it's, you know, he he does do good work other than that. So it's tough. I mean, with Ray Bennett, it's easy cuz you're like, all right, you know, his job is the power play and it's been awful the whole time he's been there. So why just get rid of him <laughs> <laughs> sorry bud all right i think we've reached the point where we start running down every player on the roster on in the playoffs and talk a little bit about how they did i don't want to grade them because grades are you know a thing that everyone steals so we're not going to be the next to do it um <laughs> let's I'm going to go down the, the roster listed, which is in no particular order, which is to say alphabetical. Um, first up, we're going to talk about forwards, beginning with Pierre-Edouard Belmar. Um, how do we feel like uh, Pevel's performance was? I think he did his job. I, I think the fourth line in general was solid. They did their job, and he wasn't one of the worst penalty killers. I, I don't think it was anything exceptional, but I, he did... Score. I know at least one goal it was a pretty big goal that passed from O'Connor. So I think you got to be happy with his performance, and I'm glad he's back for another year. So you, so you would say did his job? Yeah, yeah. I, I think he was pretty bad against Arizona, but it, he definitely stepped up his game against Dallas. Um, you know, he, he had two goals. The, the the pass from O'Connor was a sweet goal, and his empty netter. You know, that was fun. Because <laughs> um, Miko, because Miko got to kill Iskinen on the play. Yeah, he's good. I I still wonder about being married to the idea of having a line that doesn't score much, sort of on purpose, and he, and he's sort of part of that. But um, you know, when when he does score, and his line does score, then you know it, it, it's not quite the liability it could be. So it sounds like you're saying somewhere between did his job and mixed bag. <laughs> He was good against Dallas, I'll say that. And just in the playoffs, I just didn't like him against Arizona. Okay. 
I, I'm I'm developing some categories in my head that are definitely not grades. Um, they are <laughs> very good, um, and you can add whatever expletives you like to that. Um, to did his job, to mixed bag, to not good enough. <laughs> That's um, fair. So Shane Bowers, we did not see, um, and we didn't really have we an did. opportunity to because Logan O'Connor came in and was very good. Um, except, oh wait, maybe there was. <laughs> except maybe there was, and uh, you'll hear about that in a minute. So Andre Burakovsky, <laughs> I'm going to jump on the mixed bag grenade for this one right off the bat because he was either he was very, he was either excellent or wasted space. Burkowski is such a frustrating player for me. Um, so I think mixed bag's pretty fair. It he was when he's bad, he's just he doesn't contribute much. And there was some bad defense, especially in I think it was game one. And he was not defending on two of the goals against. Um, if you look at his time on ice, he does not get a lot of play. There's a lot of 11 minutes, 13 minutes, and that was through the bulk of this postseason. Of course, he played a lot in last game when Landy was out. And he was but good. You look at, but you look at it, and he had he was one of the top scorers. He had the most, I think he had the most even strength points in the Dallas series. And so, it, and we know his skill level, his shot, the way he stole the puck and scored, I think it was in game six or seven. Yeah. Game, no, it was game, game seven. It was game seven. It was, it was game seven because they made a big deal about how he scored like four or five career game seven goals. So, man, that I'm was, not gonna that was a wonderful play. It was so it good. It was. It was. <laughs> and, and with him, you just live with the good and the bad. And I'm fine with that because it's hard to find a guy that can make plays like that, that has that kind of shot, that has that skill level that isn't necessary. I think it's okay that he's not necessarily a top six guy all the time with that skill, but you have to accept it. I think there's a lot of blinders out there that think Burkowski's like wonderful all the time, and he certainly isn't, but you are still glad to have him. So. I think mixed bag's very fair grade for him. All players of offense are going to be streaky. That's the nest, that that's how goal scoring works. But for Burakovsky to get up to did his job territory, he needs to, you know, have these brain off moments go away. He can't disappear for half half the time to be yeah, I'm, any sort of consistent player. I'm a little higher on Berkey. I I, I thought he had a good series and I would say he did his job. I think part of the reason that his, his job as I see it is sort of transition uh, play, neutral zone play uh, zone entries and scoring. And I, you know, I think if you're going to grade him on things that we know he's not good at, then, you know, yeah, you're going to, you're, you're going to end up with a mixed bag kind of thing. But, you know, I, I think the staff is well aware that you don't want him out when you're trying to hold a lead or, or anything like that, or you, you don't want to start him in the defensive zone that much. But um, what you're asking him to do, he's very good at, and I, I thought he did it well for the most part this series. So I'll he give got him a better did his as job. it went on. So he at least... He came on at the right time. I'll say that. Yeah. 
Yeah, he he deserves credit for the the good yeah. things he did in the series. We just we yeah, we have he's we a have limited to, guy. We have to have him not be a liability when he's doing things that aren't his role. Yeah, I mean that would be nice. I just you know I, I think he is what he is at this point. I don't think he's going to learn to play defense, you know, in a static situation that well. But you know he might surprise us. Matt Calvert. Uh, absent. <laughs> I this... can't remember. Yeah, I can't remember that far back when he actually played. I'm sure he was fine against Arizona, like everybody was. <laughs> <laughs> this series against Dallas, with with their propensity for running around and shitbirdery, is so much different with Matt Calvert in the roster. Yeah, he was yeah. missed for sure. He brings something that they don't have a lot of. In when I, we're I think watching his finishing ability. Over Logan O'Connor would have helped a little bit, but I, you know, I liked O'Connor, so yeah, we'll get to that. I, I don't know how much more he would have. I, I don't know how much more he would have brought. Um, but I agree. It's yeah, not like I mean, losing Kennan or something, right? I mean, yeah, still talking about. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking yep. about losing guys, and it, 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 as Bender says, it never helps. But I mean, we didn't lose Sam, we didn't lose McCarr, we didn't lose McKinnon, we didn't lose Padre. You know, like we're we're talking about mostly role players yeah but when, yeah, when I mean, you look at i saw a lot of people saying like oh boy we we're, we sure miss calvert in the series and i'm like I, you know a little I, I don't think that much but you know but i'm I'm not a huge fan so i don't know i guess i'm a little biased you miss him in the crusty moments for sure um and you miss him in moments like game one when colorado were down three to nothing and have no four check you, you miss him in the first period of game four where Colorado can't seem to figure out which direction the puck needs to go. I, I, I think it's things like that where his influence is, where he's never not... Like, Matt Calvert has two settings. They are not playing and try hard. And yeah. there's a, yeah. there was a couple of moments where we really missed that, I think. Um, so I think it, it's bad if, if you can't overcome the loss of Matt Calvert. But I agree that... There's a lot of things that added up to this loss, and that's certainly one block of it. Yeah, it's not that they couldn't overcome that. It's that it didn't help. Yeah. JT Comfer. Failure. Yeah, he's someone that, that has to be on whatever the lowest grade is. N- not good enough. Ghost. And we know he disappears. So this is also a little bit of the Burakovsky argument is we know he's so inconsistent. We We know that He'll have an amazing game like twice a month, and then the rest of the games he's going to do nothing. But boy, it's not what nothing. A time. It actively hurts the team on the PK. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got to make up for that. If you're going to be that bad on the PK, you better be jamming home some goals. And it, like he didn't have a shot, I think, for the. I'm talking a shot attempt at any strength for like the first five games. I know, and then he ended up with seven at even strength for a series for a guy that plays pretty consistent minutes yeah it's just, it's just not good enough it's it's kind of appalling really what a time to just have a total no show for seven games yeah and it's like you know i i, I get down on comfort like like kind of we all have agreed that you know he's a little overrated for what he does but um you know this is sort of out of character for him because that's that's just not his jam i mean he you know he'll usually show up if he can't shoot or score or whatever He'll he'll 
at least make his presence known. And that was sort of the scary thing for me. Is just you never even noticed him, except when right. he was on for the PK, guy letting passes right through the middle of the ice. Coming in, his career was known as a little bit of that stuff that Calvert brings, a little bit of a shit right. stirrer. He, he just doesn't do that, and it's... Or, or a big game guy. Yeah, you know, it's just the things think... that that are sort of anecdotal that he's known for didn't happen. I think he also took the last penalty, which, you know, maybe the refs were looking <laughs> it was for it, but he bullshit still took penalty. It. Yeah. <laughs> it just yeah. it really makes you wish he wasn't signed for three more years. So let's just put it that way. Yeah. Um ho- hopefully we can get a little bit of help from that help with that, uh from from, you know, new faces to the NHL. Jonas Donskoy. Did we see him for more than like a game or two in the series? Did he play at all? I don't really remember. Yeah, yeah he but he two- was he wasn't good in them. Yeah, he and was. Maybe he I mean, was... almost assuredly hurt in those, but he was not effective. Jonas Donskoy gets an incomplete. Uh, we didn't want to say the next name on the list. Do you know yeah. who it is? Yep. So it's Sheldon Dries. Yeah, it's just you failed. And he played. I, I'll give him full credit. He played well for what he, they gave him. You know, the five minutes he played, nothing really bad happened, and he actually generated some offense. For the first time in his career, the puck was going the right direction with him on the ice. So, yes, props for that. But he also, he showed why he's an NHL. Even though it was positive, the type of offense that he was trying was very obviously AHL offense. Trying the wraparound, trying... That almost snipe. worked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when he when he got a little bit of that break off the the blue line, but then he just shot it like not even anywhere near going in. That's very AHL type stuff. But but yes, for him, the six months he was on the ice, the puck was going the correct direction. So I'll give him credit for that. But you, it's unacceptable to have him in a game seven at all. Like, you have failed when you just have even made that decision. Like, it's so ironic that the player that beat the Avs in Game 7 was also an injury replacement, had 11 career NHL games to that point, played twice in the playoffs, not even since the Calgary series. He didn't even play in the entire series, just like Dries hadn't. But the guy scores a hat trick. He scores the 4-4 game-tying goal. He also scores the goal in overtime. So when you say an injury replacement from the AHL couldn't possibly make a difference, this is where you say that's absolutely bullshit because it absolutely can. And if it had been, say, Cout, would he have scored a hat trick? You know, maybe not because – you're never going to count on that. I mean, you can't count on a hat trick from anybody at any point. But Cout had a better AHL point per game. He had more points in his NHL stint than, I'm going to try to say his name, Kiviranta did. So who's to say that when you put talent in a position because there's an opportunity, it's going to make a difference. And it, so it was just the most abs thing to happen in a game where you play Sheldon Dries and you say it doesn't matter who we play. And then you look on the other side of the ice and it absolutely matters who the other team plays. 
and when you're making decisions like this over and over and over again, you get bit, you get bit in the ass and this is what happens. You're sitting at home and they're moving on to the Western conference finals. Anything from you on that one, Earl? Because I have nothing else to say. Yeah. You're, you know, basically what Jackie just said, you're, you're looking at three guys that, that haven't played in the series yet and they're available. You've got Dries, you've got Tyne and you got Shane Bowers and you go with Dries and it's just, it, it's such a predictable and deflating situation. And, you know, I, I don't think Bowers would have scored a hat trick either, but the experience that he gets in that game, you know, I don't know, maybe they wanted to shelter him from a series ending loss or something. I don't know that, but um, there was more to be gained by playing Shane Bowers in that game, but than playing Sheldon dries. And I just, it, it's a really disappointing dis- decision by the staff. Well, um, the other thing is you're not getting Bowers ready to contribute. You never called him up during yeah. the season. You didn't give him a game. Let's say in the Arizona series might've been perfect time to give someone a go where it's not life and death. Like, he never practiced with the big team. He never took warmups. Like you knew that he was nowhere near them putting him in the lineup. So when you get to that point, when you're making the decision for game seven, of course he's not ready because you've done nothing to get him ready. That's the other right. problem with the call-ups during the year. And people say, does it matter? This guy's going to sit there and eat nachos. Well, surprise, surprise. He plays in a game, but it doesn't matter. He only plays six minutes like what difference is it going to make that that's what all these things add up to is your season is on the line in game seven and you have nothing better to insert in the lineup and Bednar played dried six minutes like if he was so impressed with what dries was doing why didn't he play him more dries had only played six minutes every single time he played this season well the other disappointing thing is is also like all right you put o'connor in and you know, he was a spark plug. I mean, he, you know, he definitely made his presence known and did good things. And the same it, happened with Timmons. So it's like you're putting young guys in and good things are happening. And then you go ahead and, and you make this decision. It, it just doesn't make any sense. It's it's inconsistent as well. So, I And just, yeah, yeah, I will say it was progress to at least think of O'Connor and Timmons. Of course, it took having to get through Connaughton, which we'll get to, to get to Timmons. We're going to get to all of them. But... Yeah. It's, and then the other problem is, is when you're playing dry six minutes, that's why McKinnon's playing 30 minutes getting burned out and isn't effective. If you don't have someone that you could have played, like if, if Cowd had been available and they played him, he would have played probably 10 to 12 minutes. And in that time, maybe he wouldn't have done anything. He wouldn't have scored a point, but that would have been less of a burden on guys like McKinnon and, and all the other ones who had to pick up that slack because Bender can bear to play him more than six minutes. That's not an NHL player if you're playing a guy for six minutes. So the part I want to key in on is where you said that you've made this decision because of all of the little micro decisions throughout the season, such that Shane Bowers is not, you don't feel like he's ready to be in your roster at this moment. Um, It's the opposite of the anxiety question, right? Is, Is it like, yes, it's, it's possible, um, it, like it, it's not about it being probable that someone's going to score multiple goals in a game. It's that it's possible. Is it possible that Sheldon Dries is going to score more than one goal? Like, give me a break. Um, <laughs> so, and that, and that's 
I mean, Sheldon Dries is five million times the hockey player I'll ever be. It's 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 not about that. It's that he's not at the NHL level. If you actually take the time during the year to get Shane Bowers ready, it is possible that he might help your team in a positive way. I right. mean, and if you look at if you look at their games too, I mean, I mean, it's not something that's really worth going down. But it's like no, it's not. Bowers is big and plays in front of the net really well, and it's like that's the kind of thing they really would have needed. I mean. And so since you know, is, a, is a shooter, so that wasn't working. So since you've done nothing for months and months to to integrate Shane Bowers into your roster, are you really going to expect him to help you in this situation, or is he going to come in and have six or seven minutes of rookie moments? Like you have to get your players ready for them to actually be able to help you in that situation. You've and you've I still really handcuffed that yourself because it would have been experience for him. But yeah, I mean. You, you have to invest in your players. Well, I mean, they really didn't do anything with Timmons after his first two games in the beginning of the year. So it's like, I don't see a huge difference between putting Bowers in and, and using Timmy. Well, I mean, uh, and Timmy other than Timmy's a little older in the NHL and he played in their exhibition game. It was something. Right. I'm, I'm just saying that there's, <clears throat> there's not a there there really isn't a big difference as far you know even though Bowers had zero NHL experience you know it's like he's practiced with the team a, a ton um you know he knows the systems and everything like that like he's not going to go out there and embarrass himself he's a very smart player so I I just I, I, I don't see too. right I I think even without being uh, uh, without a lot of preparation, I, I think he should have still been an option. We're going to have this conversation again in a much briefer form very soon. Uh, Tyson Jost. Boy. <laughs> Jost is Jost. It's nothing on the score sheet. Look at the numbers. Nothing bad really happens when he's on the ice, but no offense and defense is that really an NHL contribution well, I mean, it, he it's... he generated a lot of shots in quality and just never finished and I think his shot generation was pretty low for this series no it wasn't it was pretty good it, he had he was like fourth and seventh in in shot generation and quality generation so then it must have been an actual <clears throat> shots on goal because there's something that was a right. lot lower because yeah. I know that when you look at for the regular season, you'd be surprised that he was one of the better forwards in generating shots. You'd say, "Yeah, that's kind of crazy with his time on ice." But and he doesn't get the you know he just doesn't finish, or he didn't you know sometimes he does. He's even streakier than a streaky scorer. Um, he and, could be someone that could have a nuke type role where you're not counting on offense. He can provide good defense, but he's just not in that role. And with Comfer, they're just terrible together. Like it's yeah, it's still the frat line version two or three point I it's not even it's new. Just... Yeah, like, what did you think was gonna happen? But we, it's such a bad right. line, ah! and they got taken advantage of. Like the the second and third lines getting taken advantage of is also another story in this series. Which the second line did better towards the end, but. So it's just so hard to grade Jost. I mean, it is also that expectation. What do you? What did you really expect him to do? But to have like not one point in this series, that's not getting it done either. I, I, I think he's our nuke. Um, 
I agree. I, I think big time. I, I think there's some. I, I think there's some things that he could contribute in a role that more like what Nachushkin had. Um, and even if you could find a way to pair those guys up with maybe someone else that's not named Comfer that could maybe um, facilitate a little bit better, uh, that, that could be an effective third or fourth line, however you want to uh, name it. But, <clears throat> you know, the, the kind of things that they like about Nachushkin, I think they could like about Jost if they used him in a similar role. And it, it just, without without sort of focusing his game in that direction, um, you know, it's going to be tough. But it, it just, it's so obvious that, like, all right, he's solid defensively. He can generate some offense. He's probably not going to finish unless, you know, it, it's fairly lucky. And, and, you know, that sucks. And maybe, you know, down the road, like Nuke, he'll, he'll get hot. But, um, but probably not with a team that drafted him. Spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, That's it's just... That's kind of the problem is... He needs fresh eyes. He needs a fresh start. He needs someone to think of a role for him. It's, but it's even well, so I, hard. I think to the role him. is obvious. If the Avs don't want to, if they don't want another guy like that or a guy like that, then yeah, they they kind of need to move on from him because, you know, if if they're gonna ask him to be on a you know a depth scoring line, I mean that's just that's that's not his gig. It's not, and I'm I'm gonna also lay down the not good. I'm gonna you know unqualifiedly lay down the not good enough on on Tyson Jost's playoffs, um for for reasons that you've just said, uh, which are not his fault. But at the end of the day, yeah. it doesn't really matter whose fault they are. It's yeah. It's, I almost want to say mixed bag, and then people would say, well, what was you know he he didn't even score a point. Like, can you give him mixed bag? It's it, and they're like, no, not really either. <laughs> it, it's not good enough, and it's back to the same old situation of him not having a easily defined role for us to say, here's what you should be doing, other than you know not being a liability. He, he's okay at not being a liability, but that's not helping. I mean, is it his fault that that the the staff don't trust him to be in the top four PK forwards? I don't know. And maybe if they put him in, you know, the the top four. Maybe he wouldn't perform as well. I don't know. But yeah, maybe he would suck ass and that's find out why they don't trust a propensity him there. Um, yeah, it's just, I, you know, <clears throat> yeah, it's just not good enough. Nazem Kadri. He's another frustrating one at times. I'd say mixed bag to positive. I mean... If you're taking into account the Arizona series, you you have to be positive on him. I think his Dallas series was closer to a mixed bag. Um, I don't think he he's not doing something what you expect out of him. Like he's a second liner for a reason, and he kind of shows that at times. But he's also clearly a top six forward. It's just. You just live with the, some of the mistakes. It's unfortunate he had some mistakes in Game Seven, but he also scored big in Game ones. Seven. So <laughs> two big ones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I think I, I think when you ask Nas to be that guy that's sort of you know full on two way forward, it's going to burn you a little bit. Right. You know, he's like, going to help you out a lot. Carl Soderberg. He's he's not right. anywhere near Soderberg. Like he obviously brings more offense but you can't use him as your veteran center either right and he's he's a guy that's gonna his defense is gonna be all about suppression by possession in the offensive zone 
you know, he's he's going to be good in the neutral zone. He's going to be good on four checking and, and, and steals in the offensive zone and whatnot. But when you ask him to play sort of static defense in the defensive zone, he's he's sort of like Burakovsky. It's just that's that's not something you, you need to be asking him to do a lot. So I, I think he gets a very solid did his job. Um, yeah. Just for all the scoring, for being pretty much the only power play contributor. Um, and the the main thing keeping him from getting into that exceptional range is that he, his line did get kind of pooped on by Joe Pavelski's line early in this series. Yeah. Gabe Landeskog. And it was a bad matchup, but... Yeah. Oh, Gabe. Gabe Landeskog. I, I think Gabe did his job. I think people I look at it, the scoring line and they're kind of like, oh, I don't know if he showed up or not. But, I mean, he generated the most quality per minute of any of the forwards. And just... It, <clears throat> he does so many things that don't show up that you can't just look at a, a website and say like, Oh, he had three of this or four of that. I mean, you know, they, they obviously missed him so bad. Like I, there's no way they blow three leads with him in, in the game. I don't know. I, I think they might've blown two. Not the third one, by God, not, not the third one, because he would have been on the ice instead of Kadri, and so <laughs> no problem. <laughs> I don't think it's any accident that the game that Landis Cog misses is a track meet. Like yeah. Colorado misses him so much in the neutral zone, so much. Yeah, and that that was something they struggled with as a team the whole series, and it, you know, it it was. I mean, that's something they were so good at during the the regular season, it, it just wasn't open for them in the entire play in the entire series. I mean, they, they had no rush chances or anything like that. And it's just the fact that they did anything in the neutral zone. You have to give a lot of credit to land. Yeah. I say, I say you can't give him anything, but did his job. I, I think you can give him a very good. I'm good with that. Cause, cause yeah. we, we all were pretty much in agreement that we wanted him off that first line, but it wasn't cause he wasn't good enough. It was cause the second line needed help. Yeah. Yeah. He did score that one uh, goal. I said he'd score. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I just, I, I thought it was so terrible that like, all right, they made the changes. Like they brought Timmons in instead of Connaught and then they, they put Landy on the second line where, where he could help Kadri out and it worked so well. And it just, you know, they both got hurt. That sucks. <laughs> Nathan yeah. McKinnon was on a con Smythe path I, and then ran yeah. out of gas in game seven. Yeah. He took it to another he, level. He was on superstar level, so that that was pretty exciting to see that he was I on. I think he was on a gradual decline, yeah. but yeah, I mean it's like you pay to see that. Nathan McKinnon just turned 25. We've still got several years of this guy being exactly this good. So that's pretty oh yeah. cool, yeah. So get hyped for that. Like we we are the Avs just lost, so we're super freaking negative in this episode. But Nathan McKinnon deserves every bit of optimism in the world. In uh, yeah. In in response to that, he he is like you can't even necessarily say that he is the Colorado Avalanche, which is a massive you know compliment to how they've built this team but he's most of it yeah i mean mean, if we're gonna boohoo injuries and he he played every single game it's just i (laughs) yeah 
you just don't have perspective of <laughs> what real injuries would be. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I I think all the other uh, could be best player in the NHLs were eliminated, and it, it allowed him to shine a, a little bit. It would have been nice to have sort of you know a more willing opponent to let him shine, but um, or a point in know, game seven. He, he he made a case uh, for being the best player in the NHL, and if you look at his scoring in the playoffs, and he's up with like Bossy and you and Gretzky, and you're just like, oh my god, <laughs> wow! He tied a Gretzky record, didn't he? Twenty five points. I don't know. It's fake, but I'll take you know. <laughs> oh, is it fake because not- the round robin? Yeah. No, I don't. I don't. It's, it's not like fake. he needed 35 games to get there. Like we're still talking about 15 games. <laughs> like that's yeah. not that's really not padding it in my mind. It's still he's he was amazing the entire playoffs. He he was. He was. He's It's too bad he ran out of gas, but yeah. everything else he gave Let's let's kill the mood. Vlad Nemesnikov. <laughs> oh. All right. I hated him for nine tenths of this series, but um, you put him up on a higher line, you get him away from Comfer and Jost, and look what he does. Um, so, you know, what's that say? Um, well, you know, I and, like and him. Bednar complained than... about him all series, and and again, it's on the <laughs> ice. He looked terrible, but it's like you put him with decent players and and he gets two goals in a game seven so i know he should have been the hero it's not just that it's just like you know were were you misusing him the entire series i don't know you know it's like it's not like he didn't play up there a little bit here and there um but it's just he was so ineffective with jost and comfort you know that i guess he was with the, the fourth liners for a while too but um you know, I, I don't think he was put in a position to succeed. And, you know, obviously Mac ringing his bell didn't help either. But, <laughs> you know, you know, he, he was good in game seven when he finally got his chance. So when he yeah, scored that, was... that first goal in game seven, and I was not alone in this, my reaction was, oh, yeah, that guy. That guy. Like, that's not a thing that, that should really true. be happening in the playoffs. Well, that's the why you got him, right? Missing. I mean, that's the whole argument that you even want to make a deadline deal. Yeah, is... and it just makes you question, like, all right, when Bednar is sitting there complaining about his play, and then, you know, the minute he puts him with real players, he goes and does that, you're like, so what are you looking at here, coach? You know? Are you asking him to carry Comfer and Jost, and that's that's why you don't think he's doing well? Or, I don't know. I'd rather have Weird. him than Comfer and Donskoy because, like you said, he he can give a little bit of pop in that top six, which is nice to have on hand. But I don't think you can discount how bad he was. Like, Bed, like what Bednar said is he the break hurt him. He came in slow and he wasn't happy with his play. wasn't engaged. wasn't ready to play. Yada yada. So I don't think you could just write that off. I mean, if you if you believe at all in any sort of merit, which we know the abs do not have a meritocracy, but where your play matters and what you do on the ice matters. If you're looking like garbage out there, then you don't deserve to play more. I don't, 
Like, where do you make that decision point? Like, Nemestikov had the lowest time on ice. Like, lower than O'Connor, lower than Jost. He had the lowest. So, to that point to just how poor he was playing. And, and yet he, he got the call to go up to the second line instead of Jost. Yeah, that's... But is that pedigree? Is that age? Is that because they... They traded for him, you know, all those things. Is it because they know that Tyson Jost won't be able to score goals on that line? That's right. I see it having more to do with the rest of the roster than with Nemestikov. If they they knew that, though, then why were they complaining about him when he's not scoring with two guys that aren't scoring? I mean, good question. It's it's kind of circular, but it's, I don't know. It's just dumb. So for for me, I don't don't think it was good enough. I I give him. but it, it still wasn't good enough. That's not why you oh, yeah. needed to go out and trade an asset, which Forrest I know we don't care about, but you still did it. You brought him in, and he just he didn't do anything until the last last game. I give yeah. him not good enough asterisk, and the asterisk says game seven was good enough. Yeah. It was. I'm, like I'm in, fine with that. In a very pouty, petulant tone, game seven was good enough. <laughs> Valerian Nachushkin. He was another guy that started slower, but by the end, he was playing his his game. Like, he needed to see those goals go in the back I, of the net, and he was kind of back doing his nuke thing. I give him a mixed bag. Yeah, again, I just... Yeah. I, I, I think he was another guy, along with Nemestikov, that they just... Their lineup was so dumb that they didn't know how to use anybody. It just It's like they... When they finally figured out how to use Nachushkin properly, he fell back into what he was doing when he was good. And you're just like, so what's the problem here? I mean, you're asking guys to do things that they're not good at and then, and then get down on them when they're not doing it. And then I put think them back that's where they should of, be, and it works. And it's just... I think that's kind of the story for a lot of these guys is they're very optimistic in what they can do. That was That was also why they brought in a lot of these guys. They were optimistic in what they could do. And it paid off because a lot of these guys were better than what they were last year and such. But I think where they fall into the trap is they then they expect the optimism level all the time. And that's just not going to happen. Well, it's not just that. They look at something like, you know, what Nuke is good at. And they're like, okay, well, he's good now, so he can do anything. And you're, you know, that's just not how it works. It's... You know, you don't ask Burakovsky to play defense. You know, you don't put Nachushkin and Nemesnikov in bottom six roles where they're not going to get any time or anything like that. They're just not going to do anything. Nuke got plenty of time on the second line, though. Yeah, and that they didn't definitely work. didn't bury him. But they didn't bury him, though. Not until he deserved it. And and then he was got got better and worked his way kind of back out of the hole. So that that's why I call it a mixed bag. I think mixed bag's fair. Yeah, Matt Nieto. He did his job. I think that's all you can really say. I don't know. I think we just repeat the power, the, the penalty kill conversation, and say not good enough. Yeah, he's not good enough for me. And you look at what little offense he didn't generate, and you're just like, that's not even NHL caliber. I mean, that's not even Nieto. I mean, he's played so much better than that. Well, um, I think he's started declining. He's not really that young and. Like, don't bring him back. He's been a good soldier, but it's time to say goodbye. Yeah, he's. I, I, I wasn't as negative on on him though. I thought the fourth line actually did their job, and you know, 
I don't think everyone, it was Nieto. I think Nieto was the anchor on that. Everyone does get the stink for the penalty kill, but the I felt like he did it, his job more than a lot of others. He got the PK stench. Uh, Logan O'Connor. He came in and and did what you want. I he really didn't generate a whole lot of offense. Like I the the goal to the pass to Belmare was great, but he's he's just not going to generate offense. So that's why I'd still like to see him as more of a thirteenth forward than someone who's given a spot from day one. I think he's a guy you'd love to have on hand, but you can do better to start with. But he. He's he's what you want to happen. A, a younger guy that you put in, and they they can actually have an NHL quality role, and make you miss whoever he's replacing a little bit less. So he gets a thumbs up for me. A good job in his limited time. Yeah, I think he did his job. I, I mean, I think you you replace Nieto with him, put him with Belly and Calvert next year, and I don't think you miss a beat. I think it's. It's actually I, a better line that way. I think you start him at 13. I think that's a conversation for another time, because we are already approaching two hours. Um, bingo, bingo. But definitely did his job. Miko Rantanen. I think yeah, I he did think... his job. I, I think people oh, were yeah. frustrated, but he generated points. It wasn't pretty all the time. Please figure out weird. You, 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 you keep falling over, people... but... People look at how many points he has, and they're like, "Oh my god, I had no idea." It's like, of course, yeah, he scores all the time. It's it's stealth points, I guess, but uh, maybe people just aren't looking or whatever. I don't think they're fake at all. No stealth. There's generating the offense. Just people don't see him for some reason. They they see that he's awkward. They they see that he's not the strongest skater in the history of the planet, and instead of Turning turning that into a you know lovable goof kind of thing, they say, "Oh well, he must suck at hockey." Yeah. Well, because he was that more of a mood, like he had figured it out. He had figured out how to use his size a little bit better. Then he got hurt. And then and then yeah, he just never got quite back to that that level of stability. Is it a core issue? Is it a lower body issue? Is it a confidence issue? I don't know. But he's still pretty damn effective. I I think it's I that thought, getting I, back I mean, he to was that. one of the abs. I think behind me, Kinnan, he was the Avs' most effective forward. Um, you know, he's a little more peak power play-ish, um, just because that's his jam. But, um, you know, I, I liked his play basically all over the ice. I mean, I, he's gotten leaps and bounds better defensively. I don't think he, he was a total liability like he was a couple of years ago. I, I you know, I, I think he had a really strong series. I, th- I thought he was a slow start at this playoff, but he d- I think he gets a step above did his job, like just to that very bottom level of, of very good. Because some of that you're wondering how much are you riding McKinnon? And then at the, at the same time, you're going, you look at that goal from game six where he bats a saucer pass like, out of, you know, before it touches the ice and just bangs it home. You're going, how many guys can do that? Not many. I agree with that. I think you got to shade him to positive. Um... <clears throat> And then the only two forwards left we didn't see. That's TJ Tynan and Colin Wilson is on the roster still. Amazing. They, that's a good thing we didn't see him. I, I, Willie's done. I don't know. Maybe if he was healthy, like the whole year healthy, maybe he would have done something. But I don't really miss him. I saw somebody list Colin Wilson on an avalanche injury list. And I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> he's, he's officially on injured reserve, so. 
So let's turn to the back end, and that means we get to skip past Mark Barbario, who didn't see action even with multiple injuries to the defense. And they Bo- should just let him go to Switzerland. Agreed. <laughs> and Bowen Byram. Uh, who's going to be a real I- similar conversation to the Shane Bowers conversation. Yes, so we've already gone down those roads. It's just, I'm concerned for next year because he also had the vibe of he wasn't anywhere close to getting in this lineup. Yeah. And I think that should concern people. Let's let's see the uh, people that love to pencil him in. uh, Next to Makar, by the way, who next year should be this team's number one. Um. But let's let's save that conversation for another time. Um, we'll we'll be doing another show for y'all sometime around the draft, um, and that'll that'll be a very forward looking show, and we can we can have some of those conversations then. Let's turn to my favorite turnover machine, Ian Cole. <laughs> oh, Cole. Ian Cole I- handles the puck like Superman handles kryptonite. <laughs> He just was played too much. That he was one of the problems. Is when EJ got moved moved down, Cole was elevated, and then EJ went out, and then it just on five on five. You've got to limit him. He can't handle the puck. He can't break it out. He's an off the glass. And it's it's that skill set that makes him like the Avs one of their better penalty killers. Is that he will he will stand in front of that shot, and then when the puck's near him, he will get it away from himself as fast as possible. Yeah, I'd I'd say Cole did his job. I think he was, you know, I don't think he was. Good he was about the only five. defenseman that did his job on as far as the penalty kill goes for me. Um, you know, it. I I think. I think he did a good enough job at 5v5, even being played over his head. I um, don't... He did, that it a lot of that didn't offense, kill the team. A lot of that offense, I know you're not counting on offense for me and Cole, but he did have, what was it, like 26 points this year, and all of that dried up. And that was... That's because all the shots got blocked. The stupid stars <laughs> well, kept stepping right in front of him. Well, that was part of why you felt like Ian Cole had a good season is because he was able to contribute that offense and none of that was to be found. I just, it wasn't good enough in five on five. So you can say that he was one of the bad penalty killers. Fine. But I don't think that's enough for good. I will, I will give him mixed bag for the same reasons. Um, Like he, he does what he does pretty well. And everything else it makes me want to claw my eyes out. So mixed bag it is. <laughs> Kevin Kanan. It uh, just not not good enough. I know you can't expect much from him, and it just it, it was clear why he was sent to the AHL. It was. It was clear in a game seven, Benar played him six minutes. I mean, to play a defenseman in a game seven that goes to overtime six minutes, that's all you need to say. Like, it took them too long to pull the plug on him to go to Timmins, and then it just was extremely disappointing that the answer to Timmins going down was right back to Connaughton and just not playing him. That's... He can generate a little bit of offense. Like, in the offensive zone, it's not terrible but he can't defend. He was on the ice for three goals against at even strength. He wasn't great on the penalty kill. He just, he's not an NHL player at this point, despite 
the the games that he's had like and i'm a little bit worried that he's 7d next year maybe that game seven performance will get them to rethink it but he's just the trap they fall into over and over and over again i think he he had a good game too which is his first game and then after that it was just ugh. in the Yuck. penalties that it yeah. just was everything no, Benard go on and on but the, you know the, the <laughs> fact that they stuck with it so long and it, it, I, I think after what he did in game three which was like a polar opposite of his game two because again game two he looked pretty good and game three he was just he didn't even look like the same guy he was so bad and like that's when you wanted to get Timmy in you know and they they waited a, another game and it, that was you know obviously one of the Avs worst games of the series um you know, I just, I, I think haste wouldn't have made waste there. Um, but <laughs> he, he wasn't good yeah, enough. I just, he, that, that's a meets expectations line that, that, he, that he wasn't good enough. Um, yeah. And that he came back for game seven shows you how badly they didn't want to play Bowen Byram or Anton Lindholm, who's on this roster, by the way. Yeah. Well, that second part's correct. <laughs> <laughs> Sam Gerrard. They were left there. Yeah, I... I thought Sam did a lot of heavy lifting. I think he gets criticized maybe a little bit too much. He's always on the ice, though. But the way that he turned up the offense, I think that's what a lot of people were hoping to see more out of him. Like, he had 10 points in the playoffs, and that was one of the higher marks. Like, that that was, like, sixth or seventh on the team. Is And I don't know why he still looked at a guy that – chipping in like 10 points a year or something like Zadorov level offense it's he is a big part of the offense and it's not just secondary type stuff so he had his moments like I know game two was bad like everything bad happened when he was on the ice but um I I think this team doesn't doesn't go far at all with him like if he was one of the injured they can't move the puck they don't have the horses to move the puck if he's out so I give him a thumbs up. I think he he did his job and then some. He's such a big yeah, part I, of the team. I I, th- I think he was the Avs' best defenseman in the series. And I know game two was a struggle for him. And, I, you know, I, I know that he and EJ had been kind of split up a little bit before that. But I, I think that was kind of a game where you really would have wanted those two together. Um, but he recovered well from that and really progressed well throughout the whole series. And... I mean, it's no slight to Makar, but it's just, you know, Makar kind of ran out of gas. I, I just, I, I saw Sam being a little more aggressive than Makar and, and doing a lot more uh, just sort of general defensive play. Um, so I, I thought he was the best defense. I have nothing but agreement for y'all. I thought Sam was, was really, really good, except for the couple of moments when he wasn't, but mostly was really, really good. And that bodes yeah. very well for the Avalanche moving forward because they're going to have this guy for a minute. Yeah. Ryan Graves. Not good enough. <laughs> Not good enough. Just, it, he was he was like the Cole thing where he had that offense. Maybe you don't necessarily ex- expect it or lean on it, but boy, he had nothing. He, he had no offense, and then his de- defending got exposed. He was... Badly. He was pretty scary he got exposed badly yeah i 
I, I think that the chemistry that he and, and Makar had, um, having that broken up, that really that, that threw a wrench into his game. And then when he was isolated without EJ on the PK, it really it really didn't do a lot for him. You know, yeah, that shows he's a passenger. He's not driving stuff, but the fact that he can play good penalty killing with EJ and and he plays well with Makar in general, um. You know that's a benign passenger to me, and, and you know when you when you break that up and he he kind of falls on his face, that's that's kind of not surprising. I mean, if you're asking him to play with, um, you know, guys that aren't at Makar's level or Gerard's level, it, it, you're you're not going to get a ton out of him. I think he was a negative though. Like, oh yeah, yeah. Like I don't know what you yeah, would definitely. have done instead of him, but he wasn't just a. Well, and he was not losing you anything. I think he's he was a negative at times, and that's too bad because they, I think they pinned a lot of hopes on him. And, and maybe it's good to know that before they give him term on a deal, which now maybe you really should go back to one year and see what this guy is kind of deal. But it was disappointing okay. because I think we all felt like he proved that he was something. It wasn't just because he was playing with Makar and we didn't believe the whole like he's the top pair D now I mean come on get real but but it's plus minus no. we thought he was something more than what I, can, I think showed. he can be a top four D I just uh, like top pair no yes top four and such that number four is part of the top four right exactly four is 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 top four um so yeah <laughs> if he can't even uphold that that's a that's concerning going forward there, there, there's been a few of us that I, I'm one of them who've been warning strongly against the idea of giving Ryan Graves term right now because of uh, a few reasons, and I think we we saw some of them exposed in this series, and that's all that I really have to add to that. Ah, oh, Eric Johnson. What could have been? Part that's, fifty. That sucks. He he was healthy all year, and then this happens, and it sucks. Yeah. I'll say mixed bag. I know EJ does things that he doesn't get credit for, and I think he is... Him and Sam are a better pair than they get credit for at times, but I think he was starting the decline. Like, you wondered in the Arizona series if it was just a matchup thing, but then when they started the Dallas series and he was still on the third pair, it's just kind of like, ugh. And then EJ was bad before he got hurt. He was, he was the reason for the first goal against, and he just... He had like 33% Corsi before he went out in that game. Like, it is a small sample size, but he was trending in the wrong direction. But I will say that he's not just a negative overall. Like, he's, they missed him certainly on the penalty kill in other areas. So, mixed bag for me. I don't know. I'll give him an incomplete. I think they missed him a lot. I, I agree with both of you. I don't. I don't have much to add there. Y'all nailed it. Um, so, how much do we want to hype up Kale McCarr? <laughs> He's a star. He's gonna I... be a star. It's it's scary because we know how good he can be. That at times you're like, why isn't he doing the whole like Kale takes over game thing, which is so hard to do anyway. Especially from the back end. But I. Th I think he, he can get a little inconsistent, which when he gets inconsistent, it's still giving a lot more than what you get out of some others. 
Like he, he does, the puck does tend to roll off of his stick sometimes. And you're like, why, why is this happening? But just the way he can elevate his game and take over is something to see. It's, it's really remarkable. Yeah. I, I thought he was great. I, you know, like I said before, I thought Sam was a little bit better, but you know, not by a ton. I, I thought they both propped up the entire defensive core after EJ went out. Um, you know, it's just awesome knowing we're gonna have these guys for a long time. Yeah, most most definitely that was was where I was gonna go. As you know, McKinnon's only twenty five. Well, how old is Cal McCarr? Like twenty one. Yeah, yeah. He, he hasn't turned twenty two yet. So, <laughs> like. There, there is a long, bright future, and it's it's gonna get bright quick for Kale McCarr. He is very nearly there. Um, yeah, which is why it was kind of fun yeah. to watch the series against Dallas and and see the things that Kale McCarr does directly contrasted with the things that Miro Haskinen does. Um, this, this division has some good defenders in it. Yeah, I, I thought he. I mean, I I think Haskinen was was suffering with something a little bit. I, I don't think that was kind of a, a great reflection on his play, but. Makar definitely looked better than he did. I think Heiskanen's closer to a Sam-type player than Makar, which I know some people that's, like, blasphemy to say, which you know how much I love Sam. That's not an insult. And obviously Heiskanen is generating more points, but Dallas also does not have a Makar on the other side. But They do have a Klingberg, though. <laughs> but, yeah, it, it's awesome to see the young defenders. So, obviously, the trio of Heiskanen, and Makar, and Hughes... That I, at that, such a young age, dollar in the huge able... jar. <laughs> <laughs> he, he deserves credit. I can bring him up, but I'm giving him credit. They all okay. three of them deserve credit for showing the light and showing what young puck moving defensemen who they can do. So I know Heiskanen was thought of more of the two way guy, but the other two were thought of as they'll never be able to play that that many minutes because they're just offensive guys whatever and showing that when you you let a guy with that kind of talent you give them an opportunity you give them those minutes what a difference they can make for your teams and this is also the type of talent that byram has so please use it thank you yeah kale mccarr i i mentioned earlier that kale mccarr should be thought of as this team's number one going forward. Even if there are a couple of growing pain kind of lumps along the way, he's still technically a rookie, so we'll see what the sophomore slump looks like next year. Um, but this is where your defense is at, is, is Kale McCarr. And honestly, I really don't think he's that far off. Um, no. So, unfortunate how it ended for him, but Connor Timmons. Oh. You know, I I think there were, you know, there are some hiccups. I, I think a lot of people see what they want to see with Timmons, whether good or bad. Um, but I, I, think he folks. <laughs> I, I think he demonstrated that he belongs in the NHL, at least, you know, on a part-time basis for sure. But you could play him full-time and stay healthy, of course. Um, and, and you're not going to, you're not going to regret it. My biggest takeaway there was when he played with Sam and it was, a lot very helpful that someone else could handle the puck next to Sam that he didn't have to do everything and have all the stars key in on him and yeah. they liked well, and, they and, I mean, and Bednar's point about having a right-handed D yeah, is really helpful and I think that's a lot of kind of where Sam struggled in game two 
was he's trying to pass to an, a guy whose stick is pointing the wrong way. <laughs> um, but yeah, I I think you know I I think Timmons worked. I I wanted to see something that's they stuck with it. Like I wanted to see Timmons stay up with the team, or at least for longer. You know? I'm all for that. It it is definitely a, a step in the right direction rather than Hanan or whatever else they would have done. So I'm glad they at least did it and they saw they can win games. He can make a positive difference. But I will say I want to see a little less blunders. I think if it was yeah. Byram, he would have got way more criticism, even though he's younger, less experienced, blah, blah, blah. But he would have got more criticism for some of the things that Timmons gets away with. But yeah. Would Tim- I still stick with it? Absolutely. Timmons had some very, very messy moments. Um, yeah, and and, th- and that, that's what he does. Y- you probably don't want to understate that. It's it, <laughs> it, it, even if, as we're saying, this is definitely an NHL defender who should be here. It's it's a very mixed first couple of you know first couple of games in a year for, at the NHL level. So you probably kind of expect that, but it's that was it was very messy. Um, but to to borrow a phrase from friend of the show AJ Hayfley, uh, availability is a skill. And we will see yeah. how available yeah. Connor Timmons can be. Yeah. Yeah, it's real unfortunate. I mean, he, of course, we don't know what it is. Everybody thinks it could be a head injury, but we don't know. Everybody just thinks that because he was gone with a concussion for so long. Yeah. This could be a shoulder. I mean, we don't know. It could be. But he did have a lower body issue, too. And it's just, that's if, if you can't hold up to playoff hockey, there's a lot of guys that are great in the AHL. And they just, something about the the time and space and the physicality in the NHL just doesn't work for them. It's possible that's Tibbins, but we'll just have to see moving forward. Finally, everybody's favorite hat, Nikita Zadorov. He was bad to start I, when EJ got hurt. Well, and then he got hurt in that. I think it was game two. That really sucked. I think it was a shoulder because you could tell one was definitely slumped over the other one moving forward but he always does better when he's given a bigger role when EJ's out he always takes some of those minutes and he seems to do well with it and even though he couldn't be as physical as he wanted to be he still made a better impact at that point but it's like when you can't give him that boy does he get rough sometimes and he wasn't good through the early part so I'd say a mixed bag you just he just is what he is at this point. It it's not a negative, but you you have to live with some bumps. So what are you gonna do? We'll see. I'll call him a mixed bad. Um, <laughs> I thought he was atrocious on the penalty kill, and I thought he was okay at five v five. I was, you know, I I thought his offense making a reappearance was a, a welcome surprise. Um. You know, the game didn't really revolve around the neutral zone where that that's kind of his hood. Um, he always struggles with static defense, which is basically PK. But static defense at 5v5 is not a strong suit, and he was not great there either. Um, it's, you know, it, it's tough to see sort of such extremes of good and bad and within minutes. And I, I just... You know, I I don't know how you deal with that as a coaching staff. So I can I, see I, I, why he's frustrating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because um, so, he had a couple of games that were really good. Yeah, and and then others that that also happened. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I just I, I I think if you're a team like the Avs that are trying to win a series like this, it's just he's not a good guy for you. But you're worse without him. It depends if you're prepared to not have him. You know, like if <laughs> compared to Kanan, yeah, okay, I'll take Z. But you know, if you have a, a a real live NHL defender instead, maybe that's that's what I'd rather have. I don't think he was more disappointing than Graves, though. Definitely not. Definitely not. <sighs> yeah. So this exercise has showed me that Kale McCarr is listed at five foot eleven. And Sam Girard is listed at five foot ten. So, so that's interesting. Uh, we were going to go through five <laughs> eleven. We were going to go through each goalie as well, but we kind of already did that. So pass. Yeah, we've already. Yeah, we've already talked to you ear enough, ear off enough. I think. Um, any? Do we have any final takeaways from this bubble experience on? what the avalanche need to do next obviously this is going to be a topic for a future show we're not going to go away for as long as usual because the nhl isn't isn't going to go away for as long as usual so you'll hear from us again sometime around the draft um but for right now what needs to change and and nothing is about is a valid answer okay well they got to do go ahead (laughs) I think first of all, they can't be terrified of using young players because again, with with Timmons and O'Connor, they kind of show that uh, you put young guys in the lineup, and that does a lot more for you than sort of rank and file vets that are just going to be sub replacement level. Um, ha- and number have- two is they really have to look at your coaching staff and find ways to improve your team through coaching as well as whatever you end up doing to the roster. Um, because I, I do think that the coaching and not necessarily Bednar, but more the, the assistant coaches, you know, either didn't help or actively hurt. the. Series. You need, you need better help. If you, if you want to be an upper echelon team, you can't get by on the cheap, right? You have to invest in this team. You have to invest with the, the best talent you can in on the staff in I'd say development. I'm not going down that road. So don't worry about it. But in, <laughs> in your players, in your staff, in, in everything, you want to be a top tier team. You have to act like it. You have to invest in it. You have to, that's where you should try to get better. Like I hate the idea of going out to free agency and, and fixing your problems there. I don't think this team needs a free agency fix. That's, that's not where you get into bad deals. You spend a lot of money. This team does not need to spend money into the future. If you can convince someone to come in on a three-year deal, great. If you can trade like Zadorov and Jost and a draft pick you don't care about and get a real upgrade, great. But that's that's the kind of stuff you, you don't count on. You don't get an LOL trade at the time it happens. It might become LOL down the road, but no team is giving you an LOL trade. Like, when you dream about all these people you want to bring in, think about what you don't want to give up for them. That's going to be closer to what the actual deal is than who you want to give up for that player. So I just... Yeah, I there's no reason for the abs to trade anything that they're not actively <laughs> trying to get rid of. What do you mean you it's know? not like an HL20 and you can just throw more roster players on, on the, in the trade until, it's, until the GM accepts it? <laughs> yeah, like, I... 
if if you feel like this team is a contender that they're fewer steps away than they were why would you panic why would you want to make a drastic change like you can't do nothing like I'm not going to say nothing because you should always try to improve you should always look at where you fell short and what you can do to get better and if if there's an opportunity out there sure then look at it but I'd really look internal. You had multiple first-round picks sitting in the stands watching this unfold, including a fourth overall. Like, you don't slow play fourth overalls. It doesn't matter if you're a good team or you're not. Like, you think Tampa Bay would find a way to use Bowen Byron? Absolutely. So that's not an excuse. You you have to – and then look at other guys like Timmons, Cout, Bowers. You you have these guys that are available and ready and soon down the line new and maybe the guy they take this year. And that's where you're going to make up the biggest margin of difference is you have talent, figure out how to use it. You know, we're not hoping on third round picks here. Like these guys all would be on an NHL roster getting an opportunity on every other team in the league. So look there first because that's your best resource. I'd say try to improve coaching because – I don't think you're getting the most out of there. And then the other assets that you have that you think that you can move, you know, make, try to make a deal there, but don't force Coaches don't cost against the cap either. (laughs) So if you do all those three things, then I think you're set up to have a good off season and to take another step in the next season. I think the penalty kill needs new eyes. I think we've hashed that out. In great detail. I think you can do better with your, like, depth goaltending, and we've hashed that out in great detail. Um, If there is a middle defender available that wouldn't be a gigantic drag on the roster for several years to come, uh, I think that's worth considering. Otherwise, I really want them to do what, what you just said and see what they've got in the system already. Um, the, when you said Martin Cout, I forgot a joke I was going to make during the line by line, but for each player, which is that I was going to say Martin Cout <laughs> and then go, Oh wait, wrong roster. Um, that's okay. Just would add more time to this podcast. Yeah. So. <laughs> Everyone can thank Steph for not doing that. Yes. Thank you. There, there you go. Um, but I, I, I believe Martin Cout should be on this roster next season. Right. Oh, right with Logan O'Connor, right with Bowen Byram, um, right with Connor Timmons, if he's healthy. Um, and see what you got. See, see what you've got before the second round of the playoffs. Like, come on. All right. So um, that sound you probably just heard was my dog knocking on the door saying, excuse me, you've been in there for nearly three hours and I'm hungry. So <laughs> that's probably our cue to start r- wrapping the show. Um, thank you very much for sticking with us. I know it's the last you'll hear from us for, for a few weeks. So hopefully you kind of... You know, took it in chunks because we had a lot going on uh, with this one. Um, thank, thank you very much for being here. As, as always, we we wouldn't be here if you weren't here. Thank you so much. Um, and we will, like like I said uh, about twenty minutes ago, we'll be back with you um, when there's a draft to talk about, and we will use that show also to look forward at, with you know maybe some finer detail on the things that we just kind of started launching into of how do we do those things and and how do we make that happen um 
that that that's my parting words is as always just just thank y'all so much it's it's always so strange to me that we have hundreds of listeners every show i don't understand where y'all come from but thank you for being here <laughs> definitely thank you all yes for sure for sure and and thank you to earl for the title of this episode which will be mixed bad <laughs> <laughs> that was probably fair right, talk to y'all soon You know that rant. So that can happen when we talk about them. Okay. And then I can save it for then. Yeah, that's on my key bank keys to the series as well. Key bank keys to the series. (laughs) (laughs) Earl is banned. Like, you better be getting some money for that then.